Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Thank you very much for being here. This is the uh, 40th year of this show's existence, and this is the finale, so I'm very honored, honestly, to be asked to host it. So thanks, and I'm glad you guys are here. Um, yeah, it's fine. Anyway, uh, I, I was born in 1967, and so I grew up in the 70s. So I'm not racist. However... I do have mild racism. It's the best I could do coming out of the 70s because that was a very racist decade. People said racist things all the time and nobody got offended. The only time somebody got offended if you said something racist in the 70s is when they would then say like, hey, I, you interrupted me. I was saying something racist. Why did you? But I, so I have mild racism. It's benign. It's not aggressive. It's not even negative racism. It's mild racism. I'll give you an example. Okay, like, see, like, if I go uh, to a, a pizza place I've never been to before, and it's run by four black women, I'll go, like, uh, hmm. See, it's very mild. It's extremely mild racism. I'll notice that. Yeah. You don't usually see that, four black women running a pizza place. Unless, unless it's called four black girls pizza or something like that. Like, that's the whole point of the place. It's mild. Here's another example of mild racism. If I say I'm in a hospital and the doctor comes in to treat me and the doctor's from China or India, I'll think, well, good, good. Good, more of that. Why not? It's very mild racism. Here's another example. If I'm in a gas station late at night and uh, a, young, a young man comes in wearing a hooded sweatshirt, if he's white, I'll think, oh, he's an athlete. 
If he's black, unless he has a big smile on his face, then I become mildly racist, and this is what I think. I think, that's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> Nothing's gonna happen. No, of course I'm fine. Why did I even think that for a second? The cows. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, June 22nd, 2015. So it has, so I have been told, excuse me. Uh, I was distracted because I just, I looked outside and it has just been magnificent weather uh, here in the Pacific Northwest all of June. It's summertime officially now, but it's been uh, summer weather all of June pretty much. And I was thinking once again, it is a real shame uh, to have to be uh, inside discussing the problem of racism once again. But hopefully we can get this taken care of so that we can go back to enjoying the planet and the wonderful summertime weather. Uh, at any rate, uh, our broadcast today, the audio clip that you heard at the top there, uh, Louis C.K., uh, that was his opening monologue, not whole portion, uh, but a clip he hosted Saturday Night Live, I think two or three weeks ago, uh, he hosted. I think that was the finale for their 40th season, and uh, he discussed racism. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with uh, Louis C.K. He has a history of talking about racism in a lot of his stand-up acts and other times when he's uh, out in public. And uh, our guest for today's program, he wrote about that as well as several other incidents detailing uh, dealing with racism, white supremacy. Um, I think the first article that I read uh, that he authored was last summer. Uh, it was the history of white people hating LeBron James. Uh, I thought that was uh, such an interesting report. We referenced it, talked about it a few times, and then uh, I paid attention uh, after, I think he wrote that piece about a month before Michael Brown Jr. was shot and killed in Ferguson. And then subsequently he and, and many other folks but uh, devoted more time to talking about racism. And I uh, thought he had some pretty interesting articles. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to uh, touch as many as possible and get some of his views on what has transpired in South Carolina as well. Uh, our guest, uh, he is a writer. Uh, you can read a lot of his great posts at daily. Uh, should be linked in the description for the program. Daily. Uh, heavy media. Uh, he has written uh, for quite a few other spots online as well. Uh, you can check out some of his various topics. Uh, sometimes he deals with things that are not quite as serious as racism, uh, entertainment, pop culture. Other times he does address very uh, serious issues, politics, Edward Snowden, racism. A uh, real pleasure to have him on the program, and I'm especially grateful because I think there was a slight mix-up, and he thought we were on uh, this morning, so he was in waiting this morning and uh, was able to get, we were able to get things corrected, and he is here with us now. Pleasure to have him on the program, joining us live, Mr. Chris Orstendorf. Uh, Mr. Orstendorf, are you with us, sir? Hey, uh, thank you so much for having me here at the, uh, at the right time. It's, uh, it's great to be able to talk to you. Outstanding. Pleasure is ours, sir, and we're glad we were able to work that out also. Um, for our listeners, this might be their first time hearing about you and some of the pieces that you've written. Uh, just any information you think would be helpful for our listeners to know about you before we get started? 
Sure. I mean, basically, like you said, I'm a freelance journalist. I live in Los Angeles. Um, my focus traditionally actually was uh, some of the other stuff that you mentioned, the the sort of entertainment pop culture stuff. But uh, the more I wrote, the more I um, sort of got interested in social justice issues, the more I started writing about that. And that, uh, in a lot of ways, has really been my primary focus over the last year or so. You know, I've, I've written about technology and politics as well. But, uh, you know, issues of race and, uh, and class and things like that uh, have been a lot of my focus. And like you said, I've been a contributor at The Daily Dot, which is mainly where you can find me. And, uh, but I've been on other websites as well, uh, Mike.com, Salon, uh, you know, various, various places you can find me. So, yeah, again, thank you for having me. Pleasure is ours. We will look forward to the dialogue. Uh, is it okay for us to ask uh, how old you are? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 25. 25, okay. And you are a white male, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Good to know, good to know. Uh, this program, context of white supremacy, uh, I have unfortunately concluded uh, that we are in a global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I use those two terms as synonyms, and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think such a system exists and do you think that's an accurate definition? Well, I, I I definitely don't disagree that I, I think such a system, I think such a system uh, does exist, and I think that is an accurate definition in a lot of ways. Uh, even even if even if a lot of what you're talking about, I don't know if is even explicit for a lot of people. I think what uh, what you really see time and again, and I think we're seeing this again um, now with the uh, recent shootings in South Carolina. There's there's a there's sort of an implicit nature to to white supremacy or to to a long-lasting racism that a lot of people don't acknowledge. And the fact of the matter is that there are these there are these systems that disproportionately benefit people uh, of my skin color, you know, far more than everyone else. And whether you want to acknowledge that or not, or you know, whether you necessarily see it on a daily basis, I think if you I think if you look like me, you don't always think about it or see it on a daily basis just because it's you don't have to live with it. It's not part of your existence. The fact of the matter is that uh, it is something that, uh, you know, disproportionately affects people who are non-white and, uh, and that I think does exist and continues to exist today in America and around the world. Um, some of the some of the, the points for discussion, these will come out throughout our dialogue as we talk about some of your different pieces and get to some of your views. But I just I'm stating uh, for our listeners uh, that that's a very popular point of view in talking about racism, that white people are not aware. They're not informed that they don't think about these issues, that they're white, so they just benefit. Um, I do not agree with that. Uh, I, I vigorously disagree. I think white people are very informed. I think white people are the experts on the planet about racism. I think they think about it 
on a regular basis. I think there's tons of evidence to support that. And I think that that is a big part of the reason why we are still confused and we haven't done a better job of solving this problem is this there, there are many uh, untruths that are told about racism and that is at the top of the list uh, that white people are ignorant about racism or whatever. There are many permutations of that. Uh, either white people are ignorant or they don't think about it or they're poorly informed, they're not aware, blah, blah, blah. I'm saying that I, I disagree with all of that and I think there's a lot of evidence to show that, that is, all of that is false. Um, did, you, did you want to respond? I, you know, I do. I mean, I, 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 I get where you're coming from. I think maybe, um, I, I think maybe it depends on the specific white person. I think it maybe depends on what group people are talking about. Um, I suppose that it's also, besides being uninformed, it's also sort of a matter of willful ignorance sometimes. Um, I think that uh, the people just don't want to acknowledge uh, stuff that they see right in front of them and that, They'd rather be ignorant than uh, acknowledge the harmful effects of racism. So I think that's a huge part of it, too. Mm. I think that I hear that frequently as well. And uh, I think that's just another one of the permutations that it's willful ignorance. Uh, again, in my view, all of that, it is it is major folly. Uh, it is the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> it, is, it is just and it's dangerous, too, because, as I said, I'm of the opinion that white people, they think about this stuff a lot. They're very informed. They're not ignorant about racism at all. But like I said, some of this, it'll come out as we discuss some of your different pieces. Um, before we get to that, I wanted to ask, number one, I've been trying to ask as many of our white guests that we get on as possible. Uh, there was a piece that came out in the Atlantic at the end of 2014, and they were talking about racism. And the author, is a non-white author, the author, uh, the sentence he wrote, it's, uh, white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. Now, the first part of that sentence I've been trying to ask as many white people as possible. You're a white man, based on your experience, the white people you've been around, just your observations to 25 years. Uh, do you think that this is an accurate statement that white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism. Do you think that's true? Well, I think it's a case-by-case basis again, but I think oftentimes what happens is that people are pained for too short of amount of time. I think people are pained when something horrific happens and then they basically choose to forget and go on and eat their dinner or watch TV or do whatever they do. Hmm, okay. But the sentence uh, says specifically, often, so do you think it's true that white people are often not just sporadically or in an acute moment when a tragedy is taking place, but do you think white people are often and sincerely greatly pained by racism? Do you think that's accurate? Well, I think lately you've seen, you've certainly seen a lot of, you know, seemingly well-meaning white people who uh, appear to want to kind of, bridge racial disparities and do their best and can't help but, you know, notice problems that are going on in this country. So I think lately that to a certain extent that's true. But again, it doesn't it doesn't extend very far always. Again, I think it's always you see so frequently that people people don't people don't want to really commit to this. People don't want to really uh, really want to have their lives disrupted by it. Hmm. 
excuse me. It's it's challenging because number one, this is a yes no question. Uh, so that's great. I definitely want you to explain and kind of justify what your response is, but this is a yes, no question. And I still haven't got that. But in your response right there, it sounded as if you were saying that lately that has been the case that white people have been at least looking as though they're sincerely and greatly pained by racism. But then you add the caveat in saying that that's not sustained. And I, and I keep emphasizing that the question that you're saying that this is not something that's just a, a spur of the moment thing. And, and they do this. The, the statement is that white people are often sincerely and greatly pained and just do you think that's true if you don't think it's true that's fine if you think it's true that's fine but it's just for me it's very important just to hear what white people's perspective is on this question whether or not they think that this is accurate based on your experience as a white man and the white people that you've been around well i'm not sure i do see it as a yes or no question i think it's very complicated and i think i do fall somewhere in the middle i guess uh no, people aren't enough, if I'm being entirely honest. I don't think, uh, you know, I think occasionally that that happens, but I think truly, sincerely pain in the way you're talking about, then no problem. Okay. I, I would appreciate that. I, I don't think that question is, is that complicated. Uh, you you're, would have been the first person to not answer that question, and we've had quite a few white people want to answer that. I don't think it's that complicated. I just I think in issues of racism, sometimes it's difficult for white people to be honest about racism, particularly when talking about white people kind of analyzing and being honest about white people's views in the system of white supremacy. I think that sometimes is very difficult for people, and that's something I try to encourage on the program. Um, Let's see, the, the question, I guess before we get to some of your writing, with all of the focus on what's happened in South Carolina, uh, just before we, we touch your pieces, uh, what have your observations been about this this incident, and do you have any plans to write on this? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Yes, sir. The situation in South Carolina, what are your observations in terms of what has this revealed about racism, and do you have plans to write on this incident? Oh, I will write on it when and if there's time for me to write on it. So much of what I do depends on what there's, you know, what the, the need is uh, out there in terms of in terms of stuff that's publications I work for, what they need. Uh, if someone wants me to write on it, I absolutely will. Uh, I, have, I have to admit, it's one of those things where this can only happen so many times before you kind of, don't know what to say you know it's it's devastating and it keeps happening again and again and again and you know it's hard not to feel hopeless about it I, I don't think you know that's not ultimately the answer that we want you know we we want to find solutions but you know for me the umpteenth time you know covering news stories like this in the last year, it's, it's insanity. It, it really is just hard to believe, I think, until you open your eyes, okay, this is, this is constant. This is never-ending. And the fact that we're coming across it again is just, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say. It really is pretty, pretty disgusting and quite devastating. Through the past few days, uh, this happened last Wednesday, uh, what has this incident revealed about white people specifically in their response 
to all of this, how they've talked about this, how they framed uh, this issue. What has this revealed about white people? I think it's revealed a lot of the same stuff that's always revealed. You know, like I said, there's a lot of people who are well-meaning and who who want to see change happen. But, you know, the more more unfortunate aspects is you have such a huge part of the population that is defensive, that doesn't want to take any responsibility for something like this, who again we see sort of this, you know, not all white people mentality emerge where it's like, wow, you know, you can't blame this is, oh, this is, this has to do with other stuff. This has to do with church and religion. And this is, you know, this is, uh, there's other outstanding factors. And this is, uh, you know, this is an isolated incident and blah, 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 blah. And there's this kind of deny, deny, deny mentality. And that I think is probably the, the most disturbing part of, uh, of stuff like this that, uh, that you will see those reactions again and again and again. What, uh, I know there's been a lot of discussion about forgiveness uh, and some of the footage of the victims, family members uh, saying that they forgive uh, the suspected white terrorist uh, in this case. Um, Just your observation, I know you've written about, talked about uh, some of the other incidents that have happened, major tragedies, the Boston uh, bombing, um, do you recall in some of the other incidents, Charlie Hebdo earlier this year, do you recall as much conversation about forgiveness and, and forgiving the perpetrator? Like, do you remember as much conversation about forgiving the Zanaya brothers or uh, the perpetrator in the Charlie Hebdo situation? Mm-hmm. Well, I I think the concept of forgiveness is, uh, is steeped in this particular incident because it happened in a church and because it's, uh, you know, it's part of a church community and in theory that's, that's what, you know, church communities do. They forgive people. They're, they're kind like that. Um, I don't know if I see it as related to some of, some of these other incidents in terms of forgiveness. I, I guess for me, it's like, I, I'm, you know, when I, in terms of the Sarnaya stuff, I wrote about how I'm, not in favor of the death penalty, but I, I don't know if I'm necessarily saying that we should be quick to forgive what happened in this incident either. I mean, this was this was something that was atrocious, and I, I think it's you know I think it's humbling to consider that uh, members of that church would would forgive the suspect, but I it's also kind of hard for me to comprehend in some ways. That's uh. Just for context for some of our listeners, because you were saying you, you think the, the context of this incident being in a church and that that has something to do with it. And I, I agree. I think that that is a part of the narrative. But I also uh, have to, to pause because there have been so many incidents of black people being mistreated, particularly in incidents where it seems like racism was practiced. These people, black people were harmed as a result of white supremacy being practiced. And they forgive the situation with Monet Davis earlier this year, uh, the situation with the Oklahoma fraternity, Levi Pettit. Uh, We talked about Eugene DeCock. This is an infamous white killer in South Africa. He was named, uh, nicknamed Prime Evil. Uh, A lot of the victims, it was pretty much the same thing that we just saw this year. He was uh, paroled. He was released from prison. I think he served about 20 years. Uh, Some of his, uh, the family members of the victims, people that he killed, 
came out and took pictures with him and said that, you know, we, we forgive you, we forgive you, and, and we're not holding a grudge or anything. We're glad you are moving forward with your life. And uh, to me, at least, it seems like there is a pattern when the victim is a black person. There is much more talk, much more rhetoric of forgiveness. Let's not hold a grudge. Let's forgive. And I just I don't tend to see that when it's non-black people, particularly white people, when they're victims. I just don't hear the same type of dialogue about forgiveness. Um, does that make sense or am I talking crazy? Oh, I think you're I think you're 100 percent right. Okay. No, I, I, I totally I totally agree. If it, you know, anytime you have the people who are in power, anytime you have a cop shoot a black person, there's no, you know, I, 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 I don't know. It's, it's, in that incident, it's like, it's like the person that, that hurt needs to be forgiven because surely the people who are in power couldn't have, couldn't have done anything wrong. I think it's, I, I think that's absolutely true. Wow. The uh, last one on the South Carolina situation, uh, Dylan Storm Ralph, uh, he has this manifesto that's been attributed to him. I don't know if he wrote it or not. I haven't really heard people say if it's been authenticated, but uh, the piece that says, let's see, the piece that says, it's, oh, I just want to read the portion really quick and then see if you can, you can tell us whether or not you think this is accurate. But he says, say you were to witness a dog being beat by a man, you are almost surely going to feel very sorry for that dog. But then say you were witness to a dog biting a man, you will almost, you will most likely not feel the same pity you felt for the dog for the man. Why? Because dogs are lower than men. This same analogy applies to black and white relations. Even today, blacks are subconsciously viewed by white people as lower beings. They are held to a lower standard in general. This is why they are able to get away with things like obnoxious behavior in public because it is expected of them. Uh, Do you think, just based on your experience with white people, do you think that that's accurate, that most white people they think of black people as lower beings? I think there's definitely some truth to it. I absolutely, I mean, I, based on his, based on that text, it's, it would certainly make sense that the person that committed this atrocious act would feel that way. But again, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sort of implicit racism, a lot of white people who don't even, who know they feel this way, or if they know they feel this way, again, they don't want to acknowledge it because that was just the way they grew up. That was just the way they were, you know, that's just what they were taught. That was what they were born with. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think that there is a huge part of the population out there that unfortunately does feel that way. You know, they've done, I've written about this. They've, they've done studies that found, you know, when you're, you know, when you put a jury together, the feelings of the jury, of a mostly white jury, you know, that they actually, they actually see black people as less human, you know, that they, that they don't process their pain in the same. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a literal mental reaction. You know, it's a, it's, it's like pulling a switch. It's, uh, again, it's unfortunately it's incredibly 
deeply ingrained in a lot of people, I think. A lot of white people, absolutely. The I think the piece you're referencing, why black lives don't matter to grand juries, uh, folks can check that one yeah. out. Uh, Daily Dot, uh, you can read that one for yourselves. Um, to get to some of your pieces, um, the, as I told the listeners, the first piece that I saw that you authored, uh, The History of White People Hating LeBron James. This came out the summer of 2014. Uh, what was your purpose for putting this piece together, and who was your target audience? I guess my target audience was just anyone who'd ever <laughs> kind of uh, considered LeBron James in a negative light and really wanted to look at why are we considering him this way. You know, and I'll freely admit, I was, I, I think I was on the uh, LeBron hate train for a while too. You know, I went to uh, I went to college in Chicago, and you know there was a there was a year where the Bulls were playing really well and where everyone was really excited about Derrick Rose before some of the injuries. And it was just when they went up against the Cavs, it was just, you know, it was, it was incredibly easy to make, to make LeBron the, the villain, you know, and, and it's, I think it's even easier to do that, you know, when you have to acknowledge that, yes, he is the greatest basketball player in the world. Now it's like people start to forgive him when he comes back to Cleveland and when he humbles them, humbles himself. Uh, that's because oftentimes you, you know, people, especially, well, I mean, white people primarily, they don't want to see, they don't want to see a, uh, a strong black figure who acknowledges how good he is at what he does. I mean, that statement that he made in the finals this year, asked if he was worried or not, he was like, he's not worried because he's the best basketball player in the world. I think if he'd made that statement a few years ago, when people were really ramped up against him when he was playing for the Heat, I think people would have just gone nuts. And granted, this year, I think the series was tipped a little bit more in Golden State's favor anyway, but I think people would have gone nuts at that point. Oh, LeBron, the ego, can you believe, can you believe that, that he would say this and he would do this? And the fact of the matter is that he's, he's right, you know, and everyone else is just pissed off that he has, you know, that he has, frankly, the courage to say it. Uppity black people, we have talked about that on this program uh, consistently, uh, how a confident, uh, self-respecting black person uh, just really riles uh, a lot of white people and has for a long time. You referenced in the piece uh, comparing him to Muhammad Ali, and I would even say you could go all the way back to Jack Johnson, maybe even Serena Williams, because I think she's another one that there's a lot of disgust and she is undeniably the best uh, in the business that what she does. Um, when I read your piece, I, even, I learned a few things because I didn't know that a white person, uh, Scott Robb, or uh, it's R-A-A-B, uh, he's written a whole book about how much he hates LeBron James. Uh, it's titled The Whore of Akron. Yeah. <laughs> we, we read uh, an excerpt uh, from the book, and I mean, I don't even know if absurd catches it. I mean, this is like pathology. This guy like followed him around basically for a year after he left Cleveland and writes about him and about how much he hates him. And I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. But when I thought about it, I was just like, wow, like this is, it reminded me of Dylan Storm Ralph uh, to follow someone uh, in this manner and have the same sort of angst and vitriol towards a black person that's seemingly totally irrational. Just do you think you could have that same sort of thing happen if LeBron James was a white person? No, absolutely not, and it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't happen. I mean, 
I don't know. It's the, it's, it's the confidence that I think bothers people. You know, it's the fact that he's not contrite about how good he is, that he's humble. He's not humble and he doesn't, he doesn't need to be. When the fact of the matter is he's actually not any more braggadocious really than plenty, plenty of other people who are great at their profession. But you know, he knows he's good. And I, I don't know. I think that book right there, it's just, I, I don't know. Like you said, there's a, there's a deeply kind of disturbed pathology to, to someone who would take it that far. And it, I mean, it manifests in casual ways too. You know, I, I think, I think I brought him up briefly in the piece, you know, I, I think Kanye West is easily the best pop artist of the last decade or so. And people, I get in conversations and arguments with people constantly about, you know, just, Oh, well, the ego on that guy, the ego, you know, Oh, he's, just, he just, oh he's, you know, he takes himself so seriously. And it's like, he should take himself seriously, you know? I think, uh, frankly, I think people just don't want to acknowledge that, you know, that's, that's threatening. It's threatening to a lot of white people, especially to see someone who's that good at what they do and who's that confident about it. Absolutely. Uh, this is one that I checked the comment section, which I encourage folks to do regularly because uh, sometimes uh, white people will let it fly <laughs> in this type of article. And I saw a lot of, it looked like they had avatars that these were white people that were commenting basically. And they were saying, uh, you're a race baiter. You're an idiot. Uh, I hate LeBron James and him being black has nothing to do with it. I can't believe Daily Dot published this sort of rubbish. It was a lot of that. Uh, one in particular, uh, this person wrote articles like this might actually make me dislike LeBron because of how vitriolic and hyperbolic his fans get. The only conceivable way you could dislike him is because you're a racist is a completely dumb argument. Uh, what is your response to these type of uh, comments? Well, I can't really think of any other reason you dislike him. You dislike him. And honestly, I don't, <laughs> frankly, I, I'm not like the biggest LeBron James fan in the world. I like to watch him play. I'm not the biggest basketball fan in the world, but I think he's great. And I think he's great at what he does. I, I mean, to me, a person like that, like, look, if you want to pick apart his his game, you know, go ahead. I mean, go ahead and try. But to me, it seems like, well, it's it's pretty airtight. Like, you know, is, is he going to be on 100% of the time? No, but nobody is. The fact of the matter is he's on more than almost anyone else in his profession. And if you don't like him because you think he's egotistical, because you think he's full of himself, then... Again, you need to really go back and think about well, why does his ego bother me so much? Why why is you know why is it that this article could actually make you dislike him if you liked him before? That someone defending that someone really just defending him could make you dislike him. I didn't you know I I didn't say you know oh man everyone everyone needs to apologize and worship at the altar of LeBron, but I, I just defended the guy and I think if that angers you, someone just defending him. You need to take a serious look at yourself. Context of white supremacy, uh, one of your other pieces uh, that became even more important for me personally, uh, where you talk about that uh, unwillingness to have some self-criticism, some reflection and kind of evaluate if there are things that need to be improved upon. Uh, the piece, this is more recent, this came out uh, in May of this year, America's Not All Cops Mentality protects and serves absolutely no one. I uh, thought this was a great piece. In fact, I think it was one sentence 
uh, that stood out. I think if you, when you go to Daily Dot, they have a little snippet where you can see uh, kind of what the article is going to be about, and you can click on it and get the whole thing. The snippet that they had was the one sentence that she wrote. It said, uh, you can't have a good cop in a bad cop culture. Um, what was your purpose uh, for writing this piece? America's not all cops mentality protects and serves absolutely no one. Well, first of all, I mean, I think you can extend that uh, argument even farther if you want to. Is it, you know, is it possible to really have a, uh, a good, you know, a good white person in a culture uh where, like you said, where white supremacy still dominates so much of uh, so much of white culture, so much of you know what we think and do, whether we whether we know it or not. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there is a number of incidents that led up to this, and I think any you know any anyone that wants to employ this sort of not all mentality, it's I, I don't know, it's just it's just ridiculous. I, I think when you really take a step back and look at what you're, what you're defending, again, it's, it's about people who are threatened. It's about people who don't want to acknowledge problems and why they're, why they're so threatened to begin with is really, is really what we need to be, what we need to be examining. And, you know, I, I, I found like pieces like this influence a lot by just sort of, uh, observing like, I, I don't know, like stuff I've observed on social media, stuff I've observed with, you know, when I look at Facebook and I see people go like, I'm not racist, but, you know, I'm not racist, but, you know, this, this thing, there's a, there's a real, there's a real problem with that because, uh, because you can't, again, you can't really be, you know, you can't really uh, be not racist in a system that is so, so, so overwhelmingly basis and you know I'm I'm overwhelmingly racist and you know I'm from I'm from Wisconsin at one point I wrote you know another there was a there was a a video that went viral a while ago of I think uh, Milwaukee police chief or police officer sort of talking about um, talking about other problems in the city and why people are too focused on race and it's like Stuff like that is really what bothers me the most when people sort of prop that up and go, well, you know, there's other, there's other elements. There's other problems. Well, not acknowledging that the root problems are sort of, you know, racism or, you know, or, uh, there's a, a police chief in, in Madison who was sort of at one point said, well, you know, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, I'm tired of hearing, you know, black people complain about, uh, about how, uh, you know, how we don't police enough or how, you know, how we're not doing enough, you know, and, and the reaction to that is like, well, yeah, you know, good, good for him. You know, he's, he's, he's right. Everyone should stop complaining when the reality is that people should be complaining way more than they are. That is so fascinating. Uh, your, uh, your response, particularly the beginning of it, uh, where you were you were saying basically that the same could be the same logic could be applied to the argument that not all white people are racist or well-meaning. You got plenty of well-meaning good white people. I just wrote that piece <laughs> for uh, Atlanta Black Star, and I think the only reason that I was allowed to write that piece is because 
I used your piece as the foundation for it to say that you could just take the same argument that uh, you applied to the good cops or not all cops are bad. You can apply that same logic to white people. Uh, and I said, in fact, you could just stay on the same subject with the response to these police shootings. You could keep talking about the same thing for both arguments, uh, just in the way that we have responded, just as you laid out to these many police incidents, the way that white people have responded to make the same argument. But I, I, I can only emphasize, I think the only reason I was allowed to write this report is because you, a white person, had written it. And I was just building off of the logic that you presented. Um, I don't know, was there, was there a thought to writing that piece and just making this, because this seems, the piece about the uh, not all cops are bad seems like a subset of the greater problem of white people collectively practicing racism. Did you think about writing that piece? I mean, I think you always have to, you always have to think that, I mean, cops are, cops are always an interesting and specific focus because they have so much power. Um, because of the way uh, the police system, because of the way the police state is designed in America. But again, you know, it's not, it's not just, you know, cops specifically who have all the power. Really, if you want to extend that, it is, again, it's, it's about a, a white culture that retains most of the power in this country. So just, again, did you, was there a thought to expanding it and talking about that uh, white culture and, and racist white culture? I mean, I, I would certainly be interested in expanding it. Again, I, I think, you know, I, I appreciate, I'm glad you were able to use my piece sort of as the basis for what you wrote. But, you know, I think, again, the people who are really going to do the, the, the people that are going to do the primary writing about this and the people that are going to have the biggest impact are black writers and, and black thinkers. And I think it's important for white people to write about it and acknowledge it too, especially just to acknowledge it. But, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is I think that is at the core of that piece, that it is a larger problem and the cops are sort of a microcosm to, to larger issues that we have with race in this country. Hmm. Just for the record, do you think uh, that it's possible to have a quote-unquote good white person or a well-meaning white person as long as the system of white supremacy exists? I don't know. I I I, I really don't know that it is, and I don't want to. Uh, you know, I don't want to. No pun intended. I don't want to give an answer that's a cop out. But I mean, look, I think there's a lot of well-meaning white people out there and I think there's a lot of uh, I think there's a lot of important work for us all to do and that white writers and black writers everyone should be focused on this issue but you know one thing we've seen with the whole racial those all controversy is that white people don't oftentimes know how to be allies white people don't know how to how to do this without taking all the credit for themselves That's interesting. I'm gonna. I'm picking from from the report that we're talking about. What because uh, you talk about how the bar gets set very low for quote unquote good cops uh, in terms of where the bar is to qualify as a quote unquote good white person or well-meaning white person. What are the requirements? Like, what does the well-meaning white person do that is different from all the other white people? 
Well, I think what we consider it as is just if you're not if you're not going around being outwardly violent, bashing people's heads in, I think for a lot of people they view that as enough. You know, if you're not going around spewing hate speech and saying the N word, I think a lot of people people assume that oh, that's you know that's good enough. I'm I'm doing fine. I'm not contributing to the problem when, you know, it's, (laughs) that's an extreme thing to say, but, uh, sometimes, uh, your very existence actually contributes to the problem. Wow. I I would have to say though, if, uh, cause I mean, you, you take the same logic that you just shared. That's why just in writing it, it was, it was just so blatant to me, um, that, this is all the same thing. This is all, I mean, we could be, we could be talking about uh, either, either of these topics, uh, corrupt enforcement officers or white, the corruptness of the white race collectively uh, just, it fits together so nicely. But uh, in writing uh, my piece, uh, I said, man, it would be, it's so, I mean, it just, to me, it seems obvious that you cannot have a quote unquote good white person, even for what you just said, it echoes in your piece when you talk about the bar is set so low for good cops, like to be a quote unquote good cop. All you have to do, hey, I didn't call any black suspects a nigger this week. I didn't choke anybody. I didn't kill anybody. Hey, I am a great cop. <laughs> and uh, that seems just absurd in terms of if that's all it takes to qualify as a good cop. I would apply the exact same thing to white people. Even I would, I would rewind to what you said earlier that is inconceivable that just by your existence as a white person, you are doing things to perpetuate the system of white supremacy. Just you hanging out and being here as an individual classified as white. I think it, uh, I think it would be pretty, I don't think it would be very difficult or complicated for you to just be like, Hey, yeah, it's, it's not possible to be a good white person. If you're white, you're complicit in the system of racism, white supremacy, you're racist. It seems like you understand the logic of that pretty well. Am I inaccurate? Uh, yeah, I, I think that I think that that is accurate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> white people are not ignorant uh, about racism. Uh, I see the folks that have questions uh, hit the phone line. See if folks have anything they would like to ask uh, Mr. Orstendorf. Uh, one uh, other piece I want to bring up. Actually, I want to get to that CK uh, Lewis CK piece as well. Uh, but before I do that, just the uh, piece she wrote on Chris Rock: uh, Five Things Everyone Can Learn About Racism from Chris Rock. Uh, This came out towards the end of 2014. Uh, He had a piece uh, in New York Magazine where he was talking about racism. Uh, We talked about this. I think it got a lot of uh, attention where he was saying that uh, basically I think we have the this is the nicest generation of white people and how his children. Obviously, he has a lot of money so he can send them to a nice school, private school and that sort of thing. He still worries about, you know, something bad, something racist happening at their school. Uh, He had a line in that interview, Chris Rock, where he was talking about Ellen DeGeneres. And he says that Ellen DeGeneres is the gay Rosa Parks and talking about what she has done in pushing forward gay rights issues. Uh, what did you think about that metaphor, uh, him saying that Ellen DeGeneres, she is the gay Rosa Parks? Well, I'm not entirely qualified to determine whether that metaphor is appropriate or not, because I'm not a member of the black community. I'm not a member of the LGBT community. Um, it certainly seems that 
Rose's Apart's legacy is uh, undoubtedly incredibly different than Ellen DeGeneres' legacy. I think it's I think it's worth you know considering what both of these people have have done for for the culture. However, I I, I don't know. I, I honestly I don't know if if the distinction is is appropriate or not. And I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure I'm the right person to, to make that qualification. You know, I, I think oftentimes we want to uh, sort of misguidedly say that uh, anyone, anyone making a difference is as good as anyone else making a difference, that we want to sort of equate all social justice issues as one and the same. And I don't know if I entirely think that's true. I think that uh, issues of race and sexuality and, and gender, I think that they're all important to consider. However, I'm not sure that it's important to say that they're all the same thing. However, I, I do get what Rock was trying to do there, and I get what he was trying to acknowledge there. And I, I understand his, his sentiment. But in terms of, you know, saying, uh, you know, definitively, is that correct? I, you know, I, I, I don't know about that. You said you think you get what he was trying to do there. What What do you think he was trying to do there with that comparison? I think his main attempt was just in terms of drawing parallels between someone who made incredibly important advances in their community, who made incredibly important advances just for visibility, just for people acknowledging them. Uh, I mean, the difference is obviously, you know, Ellen DeGeneres is white. You know, Ellen DeGeneres is rich, and she's incredibly successful. Uh, what she's done is different than what Rosa Parks has done. I think, I, I think it's, I think it'd be incredibly hard to deny that. Um, however, again, you know, just his his main point about uh, someone who who makes their community more more visible. That, that, I think, is what he was trying to say. Okay. Um, are you familiar with uh, Michael Denzel Smith? Uh, he writes for The Nation. He's a black male author. Uh, he wrote a piece uh, towards the end of two, about the same time that you wrote your piece on Chris Rock. Uh, his segment is called uh, Chris Rock's Poisonous Legacy, How to Get Rich and Exalted Chastising black, uh, Bad Blacks. How to Get Rich and Exalted Chastising Bad Blacks. Uh, are you familiar with that piece? Did you see it? Where was the piece published? The Nation. Uh, I I don't recall off the top of my head if I've if I've seen that one or not. What is the title? Uh, Chris Rock's Poisonous Legacy: How to Get Rich and Exalted Chastising Bad Blacks. I thought I saw something like that on Salon a while ago. Uh, the name definitely sounds familiar. I can't recall if I've read the exact piece uh, this many months later, though. Okay. Yeah, it's not important that you have to... Basically, the gist of uh, the piece, he's saying that uh, Chris Rock and many other uh, black people, victims of racism, uh, that in the system of white supremacy, as a black person, you can be rewarded if you are willing to disparage and put down other black people, that white people might pay you a lot of money and celebrate you if you're willing to do this sort of thing. And he was saying that Chris Rock, I think, 
one of his infamous, probably most well-known uh, comedy routines is uh, the sketch where he does his uh, black people versus niggers thing. Uh, like they, they did a spoof of this in the office. Uh, I've, yeah. just, I've heard tons of, of white people. They absolutely love and adore uh, this line. And then he had uh, a skit a few years later where he was talking about Tupac Shakur and uh, Notorious B.I.G. And he says, oh, my goodness, people say that they got assassinated. Those two niggers got shot and the crowd, you know, lights up. Uh, I think he he also has a long track record. I, I would I guess I would add that when you talk about things that you could learn from Chris Rock and even from your piece where you talked about when he was on Saturday Night Live and he joked about the Boston Marathon bombing and 9-11 and his joke was not received well. It seemed like people didn't didn't uh, find it particularly funny him trying to make a joke at the expense of these two uh, tragedies. Uh, that it's been my experience, they have no problem. Uh, if Chris Rocks wants to come out and joke and clown other black people, even that statement, in my opinion, about Rosa Parks, I would put it in the same category. They have no problem. Anytime you want to go out and, and talk nasty about black people, that's fine. But you do not have, we do not give you that right to do so with tragedies involving white people. And I just wanted to get your response to that. Does that make, do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, I agree 100%. I think that the reaction to his SNL monologue was because it was framed it was framed in this way. It's like, oh well this is this is the tragedy that affected that affected all people. This is this is a tragedy that we can't joke about because it you know it's uh it it goes beyond the the lines of race. Um but yeah, I mean in reality I think uh I think if he was if his humor had been more racially focused in that monologue, I do think I do think that people would have would have not had the same visceral reaction. I think white people especially would not have had the same visceral reaction. And you know, ultimately I think I think Chris Rock is a very smart comedian. I I, I do think he's intelligent and really good at what he does. But you know there's there is a, a dangerous tendency, especially in terms of bits like the one you were talking about, um, the bit where he, you know, the bit where he uses the the N word that you know stupid white people will <laughs> misinterpret uh, misinterpret this kind of humor as being funny for the wrong reasons. Uh, you know, it makes me think of uh, of the controversy around when Dave Chappelle left his show and not to equate all black comedians and say that all their humor is the same, but, you know, Chappelle, uh, from my understanding, a lot of, a lot of why he left was because he felt like people were no longer laughing for the right reasons, that white people especially were misinterpreting what he was doing and laughing for, laughing for the wrong reasons. And, you know, Chris Rock is, Chris Rock has other bits, you know, I know there's the, the, you know, he mentioned Tupac and Biggie and he, he talks about people would not, you know, uh, people would be reacting a lot more serious to their deaths if it was, you know, he said, uh, if it were, you know, if it were white artists getting shot, if it was, you know, Felton John and Billy Joel who got gunned down, how they would have Bruce Springsteen's house surrounded and again I think it's just about uh the way the way as a culture 
that we react to things differently, and sometimes that we react to things inappropriately. The, I guess the only uh, comment I would add in is that uh, when you were saying that uh, some of the white people uh, hearing these type of jokes, uh, Chris Rock doing his routine or what have you and, and saying nigger and that sort of thing, that white people might hear that and stupid white people, I think you said specifically, that they would hear that and laugh or misinterpret it. Uh, again, I'm, I'm very resistant to categorizing the behavior of whites as stupid or ignorant or uninformed. I think they are practicing racism. I think white people, they have a, a long documented history of minstrel shows and racist performance, racial theater uh, of enjoying uh, black people, clowning, even uh, self-deprecating. Uh, they enjoy that sort of thing and will pay good money for it. They even have a lot of footage of uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, when he was performing with Frank Sinatra and the, uh, and the Rat Pack and they would do uh, racist gags and have him be the butt of the joke uh, all the time as a black person. There's just, there's a long history. I don't think that's white people being stupid. I think that's just white people practicing racism. That's white culture to laugh at black people. Uh, even, even when the black person doesn't understand that they are being laughed at, that they are the butt of the joke. And I think that happens a lot as well. Um, some of the, sure, I, I mean, I, I, I think whether, you know, whether stupid equals unaware, or whether stupid just equals Ugly, I think, sure, sometimes the, the laughter that's elicited in situations like that is, is malicious. I, 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 I would agree with that. I think it, you know, I think it depends on the circumstance. Again, you know, it is, you know, it, it comes down to, uh, you know, like I said, acknowledging the fact that we as a culture uh, across racial lines just, uh, you know, we interpret things very differently and humor is, is certainly, certainly a part of that. Okay. Uh, the person that called in to try to map some of our callers, I uh, think we might have B. Moore with us, long-time listener and investor. Did you have a question for Mr. Chris Orstendorf? Your line should be open. Oops, uh, Bruce Fine, are you with us? Did you have a question, Bruce Fine? Yes. Um, good evening, Gus, and good evening to your guest. Um, I want to ask, ask your guest, um, to your knowledge, um, is LeBron James's um, agent his his college friend or, or a black male and um, the other like guys that handle his contracts, are they black? I actually, I actually don't have any knowledge about that. Okay, because I, I thought I heard it one time. It was a big to-do when he first came in, in the league and um, – White people, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, that's when the hatred for LeBron began uh, because he had black guys in very important roles, roles that were generally, uh, and you know, still today, predominantly held by white men. But um, the next question, um, have you seen a, a, a couple of articles where it was saying that during the um, – the finals that LeBron had emasculated his his uh, white coach. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I don't know about those articles specifically. I I, uh, I I'm familiar with that notion. I mean, look, I mean, if we're being honest, LeBron is LeBron is running that team. I mean, that that coach is uh, he's a he's a straw man, right? Like there's. Like I mean, not to 
you know, not to demean what he's doing in his role or whatever, but uh, I think emasculation is just such a ridiculous word to use there because I think everyone knows, including uh, including LeBron and including the Cavaliers coach, that he is, he is the one running the team. I mean, it, he's, you know, he had the power in his hands this season, and uh, and and he he was the one with the responsibility. It's not like that's to say that he came in there somehow and like you know and took over. Everybody wanted him to take over. You know, he was in the exact position that he should be in. I just you know that word emasculated. I I, I mean, you have a, a people who have held uh, another group of people uh, against their will and have done all sorts of things. I don't think that a black man could emasculate uh, a white man. Um, that That's just, you know. But anyway, you guys were talking earlier about um, forgiveness, and, um, and you said um, you think that the church and all of that had something to do with uh, the black uh, family members forgiving the white male. Again, uh, we have a, a history of forgiving. It's like uh, forgiving white people for the harm that they've done without white people asking for forgiveness. Generally, forgiveness is usually requested by the person who's done the harm. Dylan never asked for forgiveness. Um, this is a result and effect of white power, white domination, and the fear that African Americans have of white people, knowing that if we don't put it out there, we we forgive you like a a uh, person who's abused in a domestic violence situation. That abuse victim is always going to the abuser. Okay, you're okay. You know, whatever you did, it's fine. So that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a people. Uh, Do you have a, a question? Do you have a question? Of white people. Well, I, I I had my two questions, and I just wanted. To, Give some clarification on forgiveness, but I'm I'm done, guys. Uh, Thomas in New York, did you have a question for Mr. Orstendorf? Thomas in New York, did you have a question? Hmm, not here. I don't know if you hit your mute button or if there's a problem. Thomas in New York, are you with us, sir? Hello. Oh, okay, we can hear you, sir. Yes, we can hear you. Good evening to all. Good evening to the new guests. Good evening to the guests. Um, I had a couple of questions for him. Um, uh, first, you know, I, um, I listened to uh, what you said about your, about um, this rule on LeBron James. Um, and uh, I have a different um, opinion other than the, the thing that white people don't like because the arrogance lacks humbleness. And I think it's about him uh, making his own decisions. Um, he utilized the option to leave Cavaliers to go to Miami against what white people wanted him to do. Since he's like a slave who's going to go from one plantation to the next. But, um, I think that's the piece for white people to stay for him because of that. I mean, yeah, I think, I think that uh, his power as a decision maker and as someone who isn't, you know, willing to play by the rules or whatever, or to to fit into the into the you know system as it is, certainly does affect uh, certainly does affect negative views of him. And I, I I agree. I think that that is 
that is part of it that people that people don't want to see him kind of taking charge and making his own decisions in some ways. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Um, um, my next question for you, um, as a well-meaning white person, that's what you said you are, right? Sure. Um, would you be able to tell us some things that uh, white people talk about when blacks aren't around? Um, things that they might say about black people? I, I, I white people will say will say anything. I, I mean, I don't. I don't know if it's it's a shock at this point. I mean, I, I mean, how many you know, how many times you find out that white people are saying stuff behind closed doors that they didn't think anyone was gonna anybody was gonna find out about. And, uh, you, you know, that they might say behind closed doors that you'll be privy to as a white person and um, you being a good, mean, a white person, a well mean white person, you will be willing to share with us? Well, I, I don't know. I think, I, I mean, I, one sort of example on a national scale that comes to mind a few years ago was there were these leaked emails from Ron Paul, who a lot of white people just love. Um, that came out where he referred to the majority of black members in con- Congress as criminals. Now, seemingly, he he came to that conclusion uh, with no evidence, uh, and he said what he said without thinking about it. And I think that, unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that happens all the time and all too often. Oh, any jokes? <laughs> Any jokes? I mean, uh, I've, uh, unfortunately, I think that, uh, again, going back to the way way people interpret humor, I mean, uh, that, <laughs> that office clip that was referenced earlier is such, such a good example uh, where it's like you have this white person reciting this Chris Rock bit, you know, really, you know, uh, totally devoid of rocks and tension from it. And, uh, and, you know, basically, uh, basically trying to be funny, uh, you know, you know, using this, this N word bit, uh, without any regards to, to what it's about. I know that jokes are often said about black people. Are you willing to share any jokes that you heard specifically not the public television show or I mean, I don't know if I can recall anything off the top of top of my head. I mean, I think, again, unfortunately, I think that kind of thing does happen all too often. Um, in, the, in the criminal justice system that's most put in exclusively black people in great crime, and it doesn't effectively discipline cops for their aggressive actions toward blacks, which includes murder. Um, how do you feel? I honestly feel that black, no black people, uh, this should be feeling like there's a good cop. What about you? I mean, um, the whole system is designed around the confinement of black people or the death of black people. No one else. Should any black person consider any cop to be a good cop? 
Uh huh. So, sorry. What's the What's the question? Should black people feel as though any cops, especially white cops, are good cops? You both just keep saying that there are some good cops out there. Good white cops, good well-meaning white cops. In the system that's designed to put black people in jail exclusively, and cops that don't get uh, 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 in trouble. Yeah, pro- should we feel any good Probably not. <laughs> so much as the system that we talked about. I mean, unfortunately, it's like, you know, again, going back to the idea that it's it's hard to have a good cop in a system that is overwhelmingly bad. I mean, again, I think going back to the idea that the bar is that so low, there's guys that wake up every day and do their job as best they can. But I think, I think mistrust towards cops is, is totally, totally valid. I mean, there was a great clip that went around a few weeks ago of, uh, of Michael Render of, uh, killer Mike on a real time with Bill Maher talking about, talking about this exact thing. And, you know, Martha telling the frame in terms of, you know, uh, you know, most cops are good cops and Killer Mike, you know, said whose whose own father was a cop, you know, guys like, I'm not I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure most cops are good cops. And again, you're put in this position of power and then when you're white on top of that, I think it I think it makes it incredibly hard. Um. That was my last question, um, but um, since you brought it up, do you think the mayors are uh, racist? That's my last question. Do I think who is? Bill Myers, the one just you know, with the skit that you just said, I, I always mispronounce his last name. Um, oh. Not for me, Theo. I think, I mean, Bill uh, Maher, I mean, I, I think, I mean, in that, <laughs> he sort of quickly readjusted what he was saying there to say like, oh, I'm not sure I think, I'm not sure I think most cops are good either. I, I, I don't know. I think, I think Bill Maher is like, is like any white person. And again, any well-meaning white person, I mean, he's, he's a comedian and I think there's some stuff he does very well. I'm not personally a very big fan of him, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think he, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know whether he's, I, I I don't know. I don't know Bill Maher. I, I, I don't want to make the qualification of whether someone's an outright racist. I, I think, I mean, certainly, you know, he's a white man in a position of power, and I'm sure he's benefited from that. Thank you, Thomas in New York. Uh, the caller at 5234. 5234, did you have a question for Mr. Uh Yes, I do. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right, good evening, Mr. Orson Dorf. Uh, good evening, guys, and all of the callers. Um, I had uh, two questions. The first one is a two-part question. Uh, just based on uh, the information we got from your writing as well as some of the discussion, I wanted to ask if you agree with this phrase, um, that racism, white supremacy is white culture. Do you believe that? Uh, yes or no? And if yes, why is that? And if no, why is that? If, if so, why is that? Um, I think it's I think it's one of the defining aspects of white culture. 
I I I think it's I I do think it's impossible to separate white culture from from it. Why is that? I, I don't know. Was, you know, get all of <laughs> literally all of history up to this point and going, you know, going into the future. There's you know, there's no other race on the planet that has benefited as much from their from their position as, of power as, as white people. Just his, historically, that's just, you know, that since the beginning, really, of civilization, that's unfortunately just been part of white culture. You know, divide and conquer, it's, it's, it's all there. Thank you very much for that. And um, my last question is, um, a lot of times we hear uh, white supremacists, especially people like uh, Billy Wolf and others, uh, speak and say, uh, speak about white pride and, and, you know, with a lot of fervor. As, and I wanted to ask your opinion, um, just based on your understanding of collective white history, do you think there's anything that white folks can be proud of? I think the concept of white pride is ridiculous. I, I think I think it's I think it's a I think it's absurd. And I'm not I'm not a self-hating white person or whatever you want to say. I just I don't know. I think if you wanted to get into concepts, if you want to get deeper, you know, if you want to get into psychological concepts of self-love of self-acceptance, I think that to a certain extent that's important for everybody. Um, I think. Uh, you know, I think that that that's that's sort of a different a different question. And I think, look, I mean, there's you know, there's plenty of white people who've done great things. There's plenty of white people who you know who have a myriad of accomplishments out there. But the idea of white pride specifically, like based on the racial unit, based on the the idea of of uh, white people as a civilization? No, I mean that I don't that I don't buy into. You don't get you know you don't get your own you don't get your own Pride Month when you essentially get every when you essentially get every other month when you're the dominant culture. It just doesn't work that way. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks you guys for letting me um, ask my questions. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, the caller. At a blocked number, uh, caller from a blocked number. Did you have a question uh, for Mr. Orsterdorf? Yes, thank you, Gus and Justice, for the program today. Good evening to everyone here today. I am still learning. I have concluded that black people problems are white people. White people lie to black people in all areas of people activity. We have to continue to work for justice, and the struggle continues. Thank you, uh, Chris Orsendorf, for being on the program today. Um, do white people fear a black planet? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I absolutely. I think they do. I mean, that's uh, you know, since uh, since Public Enemy and before that. I mean, I you know, no one in the dominant culture is going to want to give up that position. You know, no, no one is going to want to willfully surrender the way things have been done for eons and say, okay, this isn't working. 
it's time to make a change and, you know, acknowledge that uh, you've been screwing it up. And, uh, you know, for a lot of, for a lot of white people, it really is like scary and threatening. I mean, I remember when Obama got elected in 2008, I remember Glenn Beck going on TV and saying, this guy is a racist. He hates white culture. (laughs) It's not like, it's not like that's even remotely true. What's remotely, what, what is true is that people like Glenn Beck, are afraid of anyone but the but the people that have been in power, but the you know anything but the mechanisms which which dictate power in this country and have dictated power in this country and you know across the world forever. They're afraid of that changing. So yeah, I I, I do think that's true. Um, do white people have a code of communication that is deliberately used to exclude black people? A cold commu- communication? Yes. Yeah, I think, well, you know, again, I will say I think it, it depends on the person, but, uh, you know, on a wide, you know, on a wide scale level. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot to be, a lot to be said for white exclusion. And, and again, you know, I don't want to take a cop out, but I think there's a certain amount of not even realizing that it's happening, but I think there's also a certain amount of people that, that, uh, are directly exclusionary and that, uh, and that don't really care because again, they're, they're afraid of the system changing. They're afraid of anything being different than it has been. So, yeah, I do think, I do think you see that. And I think, you you know, again, going back to this whole racial dollar thing, I think you have to be careful in trying to subvert that. I mean, you can't adopt someone else's culture as your own and think that's going to solve everything. That's not real. That real acceptance, that's not real culpability that's not real acknowledgement of problems in this country. Okay, my final two questions. Uh, do you believe that black people know what racism, white supremacy is and how it works? Again, I, I, uh, I think that probably depends on the person. I, I mean, after, you know, the last year, we certainly have a lot of a lot of evidence of it, don't we? I mean, you know, it's, seemingly it's hard not to, it's hard not to see that. Um, and yet there are, you know, I, I suppose it's, you know, I suppose it can be hard to uh, acknowledge again that problems are uh, as wide scale as they are in some ways. What do you do to practice racism and white supremacy? What do I do? Yes. I, again, I think it's just a position of earth, you know, I don't actively try to uh, go around, uh, you know, you know, go around being racist, but, uh, you know, again, the bar is, the bar is set so low 
So, you know, again, it's just, we were talking earlier about the concept of someone's very existence and uh, cops, uh, you know, hard to be a good cop in a, in a bad system and that sort of translating. I mean, you know, the reality is that there's jobs I might get because of my skin color that other people might not get, you know. That's sort of what I was born into. Thank you for answering my questions. No further questions. Uh, the caller at 9769-9769, did you have a question for Mr. Worsterndorf? Your line should be open. Um, hello? Yes, sir. Um, greetings, um, Gus and uh, Mr. Ossendorf. Uh, Mr. Ossendorf, um, what is it about confident black males like LeBron James or Floyd Mayweather that bothers white men? Uh, I think everything. I think going back to um, you know, uh, slavery and the ideas of, uh, of, you know, dangerous, uh, of revolt that somehow someone's going to come through and shake up the system and change the status quo. I think, I think that's what scares people. Um, do you think there's a, a sexual component that triggers white men? That there's a factual component? A sexual component? Uh, in what context? Um, as far as um, white men, um, maybe they secretly admire these black males. I'm sure. I mean, and I that, that's... Go on. Well, I, sure, I guess that's a possibility. I mean, I think that there is... Certainly there's a lot of research out there that's been done, and I, I don't even think... It. You know, you have to look too far to find, you know, white guys that say, you know, we don't want our women, you know, dating anyone of other races. You know, we want to keep, you know, we want to keep it in in the bloodline or whatever. Right? I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. Um, do you think there's a, a race? Oh, are you familiar with Marshawn Lynch, NFL player? Sure. Um, do you think there's a, a racist component to some of the criticism and backlash that he receives? Uh, you mean in terms of the stoicism? The criticism, backlash the, that he receives as far as, um, I guess, refusing like, to do interviews and, right. I guess, his actions in the NFL. Right, just that he's kind of, he's kind of, uh, you know, people perceive him as standoffs or whatever. I, I mean, I mean, sure. I, I, I think it's definitely possible that people... You know, again, look at someone and they see someone who doesn't want to play the game or whatever, and they find that very threatening. You know, people, uh, people, you know, don't people don't like that. And again, you know, my son just wants to do his job, which he's very good at. I mean, again, all these conversations about the Super Bowl and if he'd just been given the ball. Uh, um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I think there is an element to, you know, people, you know, why won't you, why won't you play the game that, uh, that, that factors into it. Okay. Um, thanks for answering my questions. Thanks, Gus. Absolutely. Uh, folks have any other questions, you should get your hand up soon. You don't want to lollygag a uh, short time that we have Mr. Orstendorf. 
uh, with us uh, before we wrap things up. Um, I had said I wanted to ask about the C, uh, Louis C.K. Uh, monologue piece because you wrote about that as well. Um, to kind of break that into two segments, um, the first portion to deal with the racism aspect and then to, to also deal with uh, his jokes uh, about child molestation as well. Um, to get to the racism aspect first, um, you wrote, you said it's worth mentioning uh, that Louis C.K. turned his microscope inward during the monologue, too, for a similarly dark take on the ingrained racism he has a tendency to engage in simply by virtue of being white. C.K.'s father was born and raised in Mexico, however, and C.K.'s first language is Spanish. Um, with including that additional information, are you suggesting that one cannot be born and raised in Mexico? fluent in Spanish, and also practice racism? No, not at all. In fact, I think that information was uh, added by an editor. I mean, I, I mean, you know, it's my go-to uh, response when I see Lucy K is like he's a white guy, but, you know, and he probably would identify as a white guy, but I mean, I, I you know, I, at the same time, I just think it's worth acknowledging that there is another part of his heritage and culture, too. But, I mean, that's not to say that he can't be racist. Okay. And in his monologue piece, and I think a lot of people talked about his, his whole participation in that episode. Uh, I played the snippet uh, at the beginning of the broadcast where he's talking about this uh, mild, uh, benign racism that he has. And if he saw... Uh, for uh, black females and they had a pizza shop or if he was out at a gas station or what have you and he saw a white guy with a hoodie on and then he saw a black guy with a hoodie on, uh, you felt that him sharing in that monologue segment and many of the other times when he comes out and he talks about racism uh, frequently as a part of his uh, comedy routine, you think that that is constructive uh, and if so, why? Sure. I mean, I guess just because he's adding the conversation. I mean, <clears throat> comedians aren't always going to get it right. Uh, there's definitely a tendency in modern culture to sort of equivalent, uh, to equate com comedians with sort of philosophers. And I talk about that and that piece, I believe. And I think, I think occasionally that, that, uh, th that there are certain interesting parallels there. I think occasionally that's, justified because you're talking about people who talk about ideas and big concepts, but you know, comedians are also not infallible. So do I think it's worth uh, everyone adding to the conversation? Yes. Um, are they always going to get it right? No. I just would encourage, uh, it's my opinion, uh, white people have a long tradition of uh, enjoying racist humor, uh, racist jokes, talking about race, uh, white supremacy in a quote-unquote funny manner, uh, that there is a long, long uh, tradition uh, of that sort of thing uh, that has not led to ending racism. That notwithstanding. Um, in the segment, um, I suspect Louis C.K. could have even been practicing racism in that segment. And I say that because he started off, he said that uh, he was mildly racist very benign form of racism. That's very common. I hear that from white people all the time. 
where they, if they talk about racism, it's in the most non-threatening, non-aggressive, passive manner possible. (laughs) It's maybe I was unaware and not thinking, and maybe I reached over and locked my door when a black person walked by. It's, it's certainly never anything very harmful. It's nothing that kept a black person from getting a job or getting a loan or a business license or getting accepted to a school or anything. It's never anything like that. It's always very, very mild, very, very benign, you know, the, the softest possible racism you can imagine. And I feel like that's just folly. We're talking about war here. We're talking about what produces Dylan Storm Ralph and what happened uh, in South Carolina. And I just, I see that pattern uh, consistently. Uh, and even his, the commentary where he's talking about if he, if he saw a black person, it was late at night and his response would be basically, uh, oh my goodness, how, how dare you even think for a minute that anything could be wrong and everybody thinks that's kind of funny. I don't, I just don't see anything funny about that. I don't see anything constructive about it either. Uh, I think white people, they encourage that sort of paranoia and as you said fear of black people fear of a black planet they joke about that and encourage that but that sort of thing produces this endless stream that we've been talking about jordan davison and all the other incidents so i just i just don't see the constructive value of it even even the funniness of it i think reinforces racism white supremacy does that what, what is your response to that i mean i think it's a fair response i mean look i again i'm not going to be the one to make the judgment on on every single you know on every single piece of material he's done i i think in some ways what when he's talking about mild racism you know that's what he's talking about is sort of a symptom of you know larger larger racism in this country but i mean you know yeah obviously it's something that comedians should consider again this idea that people are going to interpret things different ways and that, you know, sometimes someone might interpret things the wrong way. Hmm. Interesting use of, of the term fair for our listeners um, to the molestation part. Cause that was also, I didn't play that, but that was also a significant portion of his monologue, which got a lot of your commentary uh, a shout plug for uh, cynical African, cynicalafrican.com. I know he would have a lot to say on this. Uh, he also uh, I put in quotes, joked about child molestation and uh, saying that, you know, for these people, it, it just talking, I guess, talking about their pathology uh, is the way it might be explained and saying that uh, their drive, their motivation to rape children is so intense that they will have the worst life imaginable. Uh, if they do this and they still go out and, and commit these acts and, and people didn't really know how to respond. The crowd had kind of an awkward response. And you, you wrote about that aspect as well. What was your, what were your thoughts about this awkward exchange? Well, again, I just, you know, what to me was interesting about it was his focus on pathology. Uh, you know, again, certainly in comedy, I do believe, people should be free to explore a wide range of topics. And to me, what I read about is I didn't think he was making jokes at the expense of anyone. I thought he was sort of exploring the perverse uh, kind of uh, uh, unbelievable pathology that comes, that comes out of that mindset. You know, again, the way people reacted to it, you know, I think if you want to 
draw, you know, more interesting parallels to the rock monologue. Why were people more disturbed about that than they, than they were about, you know, his jokes regarding racism. I think, you know, there might be something interesting there too, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I understand why that, that section of his monologue was so off putting and outrageous to some people. But again, I don't believe that he was making jokes at the expense of anyone. Just, I would point out another aspect of, of white power, uh, just that sort of liberty to go out and joke about uh, child rape. Uh, I, I, it's difficult for me to imagine a black person being able to go out and do that. Like I'm trying to imagine uh, anybody, black W. Kamau Bell coming out and being able to to do that same sort of joke. I just, I think that's one aspect, but the cynical African uh, perspective, uh, I find it disturbing. Number one, joking about child rape at all. Um, out of all the things to talk about in the universe, like that just doesn't come to mind to me as funny. Uh, and then I would also challenge because there have been so many incidents over the past, I'd say, what, five years uh, with Jimmy Savile, even though that was in the UK, but that got a lot of attention here as well. Uh, Jerry Sandusky, the situation uh, down in California uh, with the school teacher, uh, Burnt, I think was his last name, where he had been, I guess, for years, over a decade, uh, molesting, sexually molesting all of these different children that were coming through this uh, school system down in Southern California, where you are. Uh, I just I think the record is obvious that child molesters do not have the worst life, as he stated in his joke. It seemed at least the pattern I have observed is that routinely they are not captured routinely. They are not punished and or the punishment comes way, 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 way day, uh, late down the road after they have you know had years, sometimes decades of freely molesting and raping uh, children. It seems the exact opposite. In fact, there are whole books uh, that have been written about this, how it seems like in this area of the world, child rape is really not that big a deal because the punishments are just not that stiff. And then they have all these uh, statute of limitation uh, rules where if you, uh, I think it's after a five year time period or after you reach a certain age, you cannot uh, pursue criminal charges of any sort. So they've had a lot of incidents where it came out, but the statute of limitations had passed. So there couldn't be any prosecution. It just, it does not seem like if you are a child rapist, you're going to have the worst, worst possible uh, life. Um, what, what is your response to that? I mean, I think that's a fair interpretation. I mean, certainly there's, you know, there's something talking about that as well. The idea that uh, frequently in this country, people are not, punished or brought to justice the way they should be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a fair interpretation, too, to have. Hmm. At, at least in my opinion, that just reveals something else, particularly when I juxtapose that with white people, because I talk about this all the time. In my opinion, white culture, there is a very low value for children. Uh, I would say, number one, white people almost brag about not taking care of their children. That's the whole mythology of the mammy figure and gone with the wind and the help where you have black people that are being enslaved and mistreated. You bring them in and maybe you pay them, you know, a nickel for the month and have them take care of your children uh, that they kind of brag about this. So I juxtapose that with the response at Sandy Hook where they're all shook up and, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. But we're in an environment where there's such a consistently lax response to the sexual abuse and rape 
of children. Uh, that's Those are the type of things that I point out. And I know some of our listeners just look at something like that and just say, wow, this just gives another window into the depravity of white culture that this is primetime entertainment, us joking about child molestation um, and racism at the same time. Um, uh, there was one other person that uh, dialed in to make sure I get uh, their question. Uh, the caller at 9400. 9400, did you have a question uh, for Mr. Worstendorf? Your line should be open. Uh, did we get you, caller at 9400? Are you there? Hello? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Um, um, I'd like to say greetings to everyone. Um, <clears throat> I would like to get information. <clears throat> We have a um, a psychiatrist who is par excellence in our community who advises us that we should ask white people to tell us things that you say when there's no um, non-black people around, when there's only white people. Now, with regards to African-American women and white men wanting to have sex with us and saying things like they're not a man until they're had sex with a black woman, other than pure sexual gratification, just as you would have with anybody else, what kind of harm are you guys trying to cause to black women when you guys do this? Um, that's a very complicated question. I don't, I guess, speaking broadly, I can only, I can only imagine that it goes back to mentality of power. I mean, I, I I don't I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to equate, as I talked about earlier, something like racism with misogyny. But occasionally, those things get compounded, and so uh, I do think you see that. I'm sorry. What is yeah. misogyny? I don't know what that is. Oh, just hatred towards women. Sorry. Uh, hatred towards women. I hate it towards women. Okay, great. So, so if those two things get compounded, I mean, I I do think, you know, that's why, in a large part, you know, black women have been maybe the most marginalized group in this country. So and when you say I, I marginalized, mean, what do you mean by that? I mean that, you know, just in terms of visibility, how much, you know, how much they're seen, how they're how they're treated, uh, you know, for instance, I write so a lot about... you're basically saying um, victimized. Is that what you mean? I don't necessarily know if I think victimized is the right word um, because, I mean, just the idea of... Uh, I feel like the idea of victimhood gives too much power to the to the perpetrator, to oppressors, but, I mean, I, I talk about, like, I write a lot about entertainment and pop culture. I mean, I think if you really look at say the landscape of modern television and okay, film. Okay, I'm sorry cuz you kind of you're kind of getting off subject once again. What psychological harm are white men wanting to inflict on black women when they are wanting when they want to have sex, you know, saying I I'm a man or whatever. What kind of psychological harm are you guys trying to inflict on us? I mean, I guess again, I just I assume it's I assume it's about power. I assume it's it's a power trip for a lot of men. Okay, and so I looked at one time there was an incident where a, um, a there was a fist fight and um, over with some kids, and they were 
uh, the high school kids. A grown man, a white man, a guard, punched a black girl in the face. And so a lot of white people were basically saying they that the girl deserved it. Why is it that white people in particular, but white men in general, want to, um, I guess, humiliate black women and physically, you know, uh, physically attack black women. I mean, you guys like the music seems like you guys are afraid of our black men, but you guys are not afraid of us. Why do you guys do that to us? Why do you guys attack us like this? Well, I mean, I know there was the recent incident by, you know, the, the swing pool where you had a black cop grab a teenager, uh, a black teenager by her hair. Um, I, I mean, again, I think, you know, it really goes back to, to the idea of power and the fact that white men, you know, maybe if they're not threatened, it's, I, I suppose for many, it's about subjugation. It's about putting people in what they see as their place. Okay, now on those two topics, if you could please talk to me and tell me what do white people say about those two topics to each other when no other races are around, when there's only white people. How do you guys talk about this? Well, I think too often people either don't say anything or they go, oh, it's not a big deal. People are blowing stuff out of proportion. It's, you know, it's, oh, everyone's, you know, everyone is just, uh, everyone's just overreacting. That's, that's what you hear a lot of. Well, who's overreacting? I think what what you hear white people say too often is, oh, everyone else is just overreacting. Black people are overreacting. No one has it so bad. There's a, there's a lot of denial that goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you guys try to pretend that we're crazy. I think some people will fall back on that <clears throat> excuse. I mean... I always, uh, you know, I remember I talked a little bit about Dave Chappelle earlier. I think one of my favorite quotes from him is he talks at one point about how the worst thing you can call someone is crazy because it's dismissive. So, yeah, I think frequently that's, that's, a, that's a word that people use to oppress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, and then the other thing I wanted to know is um, with regards to, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, uh, this movie. I have actually never seen it. It's called Scandal. And so they have a white woman who's subject to a white man. What do white people say about such uh, relationships, both on screen and real life? And thank you, Gus. I'll take my answer um, on off the air. And I thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. I'll meet my line. Hello? Hello, did you hear me? With regards to scandal, we're oh, yes. okay. Right, right, okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I've seen a little bit of that show. I think, again, that's a pretty complicated power dynamic, and I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's writing out there about this. I don't know if I've explored it as much myself. I mean, I think a lot of people just like the show because they think it's, it's juicy or it's, you know, it's corny and it's fun or whatever. Um, I what don't do know. white people talk about, about the show amongst each other? And how do white people talk about relationships like that that are real, that are in real life? That are in real life? Um, yeah, relationships where a, a, a black woman is 
is having sex with a white man absolutely no this man is not going to marry her he, um is absolutely um um uh, being abused by this white man and he's um uh, understanding that he has no um relationship other than a physical one with her he's not going to marry her nothing's going to happen like that what do you guys talk about how do you guys talk about that um, when there's more I, black people around sure i mean i don't know in terms of i don't know if i can think of specific incidents where <clears throat> that type of conversation has come up. I think frequently, uh, I think frequently, again, people just go, oh, well, whatever. It's just, you know, it's, uh, it's just a relationship. Mm -hmm. People can do what they want, blah, blah, blah. And they don't think necessarily about the power dynamics involved. Okay, I'll have to stop you there. I'm going to get off the line. I'd like to say, first of all, I thank you. I wish that you would um, take and consider my questions that I had and perhaps when you come here next time, perhaps have an actual answer for those questions. I feel like um, that you twisted, avoided um, uh, my questions, I think, in this regard, that you were practicing racism. I thank you and have a good night. Oh, I'm sorry to feel that way, ma'am. I didn't mean to offend you. Context of white supremacy. Uh, last couple uh, questions I wanted to get in. I think we got all the callers, or at least I don't see any other hands. Um, you, I read your bio and said that you, I guess in your free time, make films with your friends. Uh, what what sort of movies have you uh, have you made or been in? Uh, I don't know, just short films, usually comedy, silly stuff. Hmm, okay, be on the lookout for that. Uh, as other than a caller who just chimed in, uh, has a non-white person ever accused you of practicing racism? A non-white person? Yes, yes, sir. Um, probably. I don't. I don't know if I can recall anything directly, but it's certainly it's certainly possible that it's happened. Hmm. Okay, but you can't remember like a specific incident off top where a non-white person, you know, expressed something where they thought you might have been practicing racism or doing something racist. Um, not directly. No, I mean someone may have. I, I suspect I've been called that over the internet and and comments and such, but I don't know to my face if that's happened. I don't believe so. Okay. What uh, What is your response? Some of our, our listeners and myself also uh, have concluded that there seems to be like a new niche for like these are supposed to be hip white people who acknowledge that racism exists and is a problem and they have read ta Coates and they watch Melissa Harris Perry and they mention white privilege and, you know, they, they will talk about all of the incidents, Black Lives Matter. They might go to a protest and what have you. Uh, Chris Hayes, Rachel Maddow, John Stewart. It seems like there is a, a new niche of these type of white people who can make a whole career out of seeming like they are well-meaning, good white people, not racist and doing all that they can to work against racism. Uh, what would your response be to someone who says, hey, Chris Orstendorf, it seems like you might be in that mold, a white person who is making a career, making a writing career where you can talk right about these issues and seem like a, a cool white person who is not racist and trying to solve this problem? 
Well, I certainly do think that that, <clears throat> that idea of this being a hip and trendy thing to do is out there. Um, I think that there are, uh, again, I think there are a lot of well-meaning people who really do want to enact social justice. But yeah, I think some of those people sometimes don't want to acknowledge that they have benefited from a racist system themselves. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's anything new. I think, you know, frequently over time you've seen white people sort of fetishize the idea of social justice and, and being sort of a white, white saviors and, and, you know, being allies and stuff like that. And I think there are probably people out there who are pretty cynical about it and who want to make careers out of it. Um, you know, I guess I would say just in terms of myself, I don't, I, I don't uh, necessarily want to make a career out of that. I, I want to talk about social issues. I want to acknowledge problems, and I think other people should talk about these problems too. But I didn't get into what I was, what I'm doing, to be, you know, to be the, uh, you know, white expert on racist. That's certainly not on racism. That's certainly not my background, and. I would never, I would never claim to be that. I think, you know, white people will always kind of be tourists in that regard. And, you know, I'm sorry if anyone, I guess, is ever uh, offended if, you know, it seems like I don't know what I'm talking about or I'm, or I'm just, or I'm just, you know, writing something because it's, it's trending or of the moment, but I guess, uh, you know, all I can say is that for me, it's just something that I kind of fell into doing. I think that it's important to talk about, and I do think people of all races should continue talking about it. It uh, one of the because we've asked, we've had a lot of white people on who write about these issues. The term they use is social justice. Uh, they write books, they do speaking engagements, and what have you. They go, you know, college lectures and such. Um, and they get compensated, some of them well compensated to do this work and the writing, the lectures and things. There are lots of black people who do the same work and struggle uh, to get published, uh, to get funding uh, for their work, to get, you know, even any sort of, of recognition at all. And even talking about how that is just another manifestation of white supremacy. You Are you compensated when you, you know, write these pieces, Daily Dot and some of the other uh, places where your work is published? Yeah, I make money, but I don't make a lot of money. It's not my primary job. And like I said, it's not even necessarily my primary ambition. I guess just in whatever work I do in life, uh, you know, be it creative or analytical, I, you know, want to have, uh, you know, some sort of idea of what I'm talking about. I want to be able to put it in some social context, but um, I don't necessarily want to make a career off of it, and uh, you know, I agree that you know, the white people probably do get too much credit in this regard, and that they're not going to be the chief voices in discussing these issues in the future. Hmm. Just, I know that can be a very relative thing. People say that, you know, they don't get 
uh, a lot of compensation or they don't get very much money for what they're doing just for the scale. Because I think this is super important, the economics of white supremacy. You you even talk about in that Chris Rock uh, piece how the economic gap between black people and white people has not changed in 50 years, which is astronomical just in itself. Um, for like a piece like America, America's not all cops mentality protects and serves absolutely no one. Like if you recall, what were you compensated for that piece? 50 bucks. 50 bucks? Yeah. Yeah, I work at a school part-time too is my other uh, is my other job. Okay. Okay. It's good scale. Good to know. I still submit, I suspect there are probably a lot of black people out listening to this program right now who write and would love to write, would be ecstatic about writing that same sort of piece, America's not all cops mentality protects and serves absolutely no one and could not, would struggle to get it published, much less to even get 50 bucks for it. Um, what uh, you also wrote about, uh, I guess, tips, if people were going to talk about racism around Thanksgiving and, and the difficulty of some of your relatives, if they make a racist comment, Ferguson was a real big issue back then. So if that was going to come up during the meal, uh, have you identified any of your family members as being racist or having racist views? Has that been like a personal episode for you? I know if it's been a personal episode, I, I, I do think that uh, it occasionally can crop up over the dinner table and in those heated, those heated uh, discussions around the holidays, it certainly happens. But you said, you know, there hasn't been like a personal time where that's happened to you like this year that didn't come up. People were talking about Ferguson when you're with your white family members. I mean, I, yeah, I don't get home often to see my family a lot. I don't know if there's been specific incidents this year where I got into a heated argument with someone. But I mean, I think I think that happens in all families. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And even not this year, just in your 25 years on the planet, has that happened before where you know some of your family members have racist views and they share them when you all get together? Sure. I mean, I think it happens in, in most white families. Your specific, see, that's what I think were some of the callers where they were saying, and she didn't say she was offended. She was saying that she thinks you're practicing racism. And I would point that out, too. There have been uh, too many times where I've asked a specific question and we're not getting an answer. I'm having to ask the same question over again. It could be that I'm asking incorrectly, but I, I have a difficult time thinking that it's every time and even some other people because I'm asking specifically about your family, not something in general about white people, not what you saw on television. Have you, Mr. Orstendorf, any of your white family members made racist comments or you've had any exchanges where you all are hanging out and they've said something racist? I cannot recall any specific incidents off the top of my head. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it has happened. Um, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm really sorry if I'm, if I'm not doing an adequate job of answering the questions. It's not my intention. And I, I guess if I'm, if I'm being vague, that's on me. So I do apologize for that. You know, it's, it is a pattern. It's not anything personal. Uh, I just point that out because this happens consistently with white people. And I know some days I'm better at hosting than others, but uh, it's been my observation that this happens a lot. And I think it's white people doing it deliberately to not answer questions or to be vague uh, when the subject is racism, white supremacy. Um, has there been a time just period, not necessarily family members, but where you have been around any white people where they 
were saying or doing something racist and they assumed that because you are white that you would you would be okay with whatever it is they were saying or doing that was racist. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I guess if you're looking, again, in that regard, if you're looking for a specific incident, I mean, I just look at stuff I see white people post on Facebook. I go back to the 2008 election and the amount of stuff that, uh, the, amount, the amount of stuff that, um, you know, that people would just say willy-nilly without thinking about it. I mean, yeah, I think that happens all the time. Do, do you have a personal anecdote? Again, not television, not something that you saw someplace else in the news, but a personal incident where this happened in your life? Um, uh, you know, again, I'm sorry. I can't think of one particular incident other than, you know, again, earlier this year when I go on Facebook and I see sort of specific people talking about, you know, oh, well, you know, people in Baltimore just need to, just need to calm down or whatever. It's their fault for destroying the city. Like that, that, that I've seen a lot of. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, the last one I'll get in, this is uh, the piece you wrote, Why Black Lives Don't Matter to Grand Juries. This was uh, published towards the end of uh, 2014. Uh, you we're talking, uh, referencing Robert P. Jones, a different author, uh, where he was kind of debunking when people were comparing the response to the non-indictment in Ferguson to the way white people responded to the O.J. Simpson trial uh, 20 years ago. Uh, you go on to say uh, it's clear uh, that it Robert's, Robert P. Jones puts it, we oftentimes have trouble connecting with people of another skin color because of self-segregation. And that's that's a, an argument that I hear pretty consistently, almost suggesting that the problem is that white people and non-white people need to spend more time together and they'll get to know each other better. They'll have a better understanding for where the other person is coming from, different perspectives, and that'll help solve the problem of racism. Is that is that what you were suggesting in that sentence? Um, I don't know specifically in that context. I mean, I do think it's, I do think it's true that self-segregation can be a problem, but I'm not sure it's a, a cure-all either. I think that the work probably goes deeper than that, than just, you know, asso associating and making friends with people who don't look like you. I think it's, there's a lot more to it than that. Hmm. I just would point out I'm, I'm uh, a big supporter of using the most accurate terms uh, when describing white supremacy. I think that's something that doesn't happen, doesn't happen often enough. Uh, and I don't think self-segregation is most accurate because black people, uh, and there's lots of work, ta Coates, we just had Beryl Satter on the program, who's a white woman. She wrote Family Properties, uh, which gives extensive detail that black people, they are not self-segregating. Black people are subject to a system of white supremacy, white power, where white people restrict where they can move to. That is not, quote unquote, self-segregation. That is I'm not allowed, I don't have access to live wherever I would like to live to just say, well, I don't want to be around white people or I don't want to be around, I only want to be around black people. Black people have not had that opportunity. With white people in the system of white supremacy, they have just expressed, we do not want to be around black people and we have the power to make that happen. <laughs> to see that large numbers of white people, we can quote unquote self-segregate or just decide that we want to, we're going to be in an environment where black people don't have access to our neighborhood, our area. That is the system of white supremacy. And I don't think 
uh, that I, even that suggestion, I think, is, is just totally inaccurate because it just doesn't get to the root of the pathology and white people's dedication to white supremacy to just suggest that the problem is one of uh, proximity. I hear that uh, pretty consistently. Did you did you want to respond again? You could let me know if I'm talking crazy or saying something that doesn't make sense. I mean, I agree with you. I think it is pretty one-sided in that sense. Hmm. Okay. Uh, again, our guest, Mr. Chris Orsterndorf, uh, should be linked in the description. Um, I don't think every different article that we talked about, but uh, the LeBron James piece, uh, the piece about uh, not all cops uh, being bad, uh, the black uh, the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Don't Marry to Juries, that piece. I think the C.K. Lewis as well. Uh, I think I put most of those on the Facebook groups. So you can check those out. If it's one of the pieces that we talked about that is not linked and you want to access it, just drop me an email and I can shoot it to you or I can just send you uh, Mr. Orstendorf. He has a page at uh, the Daily Dot. You can just kind of scroll through and see a lot of uh, what he's written there for about the last year or so. Uh, but thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the program to discuss your work and uh, hopefully we can have you uh, back to visit with us down the road. Yeah, thank you so much, Gus. It was a pleasure. For sure. Chris Orstendorf, enjoy the rest of your Monday evening, sir. Thank you, you too. Yes, sir. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we will take a quick commercial break and then if folks have uh, any comments, anything that they need to uh, get in based on what they heard or certainly I know South Carolina is still uh, garnering a lot of attention new developments with that on a regular basis. If folks have anything they want to share on that, you can do so as well. Uh, quick commercial break, and then we will be right back. In fact, I also have an audio clip that I will play. Um, there was uh, a black scholar. He was on Democracy Now! earlier today. He had a great exchange. He was talking about the history of white supremacy in South Carolina. I'll include that as well, but quick commercial. We'll be right back. Context of white supremacy. Is racism hurting you? On issues of race, are you unable to speak, think, and act with clarity and confidence? Are you tired of laughing when nothing is funny, smiling when you are not happy, agreeing when you really disagree? Counterracism.com, you can learn specific strategies and techniques to counter the behaviors of the people who practice racism in all areas of activity. Using words correctly, following counter-racist logic, even counter-racist science projects designed to reveal what racism is, how it works, and how to counter it. The open source code writing format allows you to pick and choose from a variety of counter-racist suggestions so you can produce the code that works for you. Stop by counterracism.com today and help replace racism with justice. That's counter-racism.com. Do you need a one-stop shop for all of your multimedia needs? 
Triumphant Multimedia is a skilled team of professionals with a passion for great marketing and chic design. Our specialties include consulting, brand development, copywriting, and creative graphic design. That's second to none. We also offer photography, photo retouching, videography, and video editing. At Triumphant Multimedia, our goal is to provide highly effective creative solutions built to suit any individual need or budget. Give us a call at 678-732-8067 or check us out online at trimultimedia.com. everyone welcome this is justice with the cows radio program if you want to learn about understand and counter racism white supremacy be sure not to miss a cows episode we keep them jammed packed with constructive information to sharpen your use of words to help eliminate the system of racism white supremacy asap also to be able to invest in my counter racist efforts co-hosting the cows radio program Please visit my blog, Just Do Justice Today. Blogspot.com. Here's just saying just buckets and buckets of words. Stephen Brown here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn to the battle in South Carolina over the Confederate flag, which still flies on the grounds of the state's capital, the issue was reignited by last Wednesday's massacre of nine African-American churchgoers by white supremacist suspect Dylan Roof. In photos posted online, Roof can be seen posing with the Confederate flag and in front of a car with a front license plate that reads, Confederate States of America. On Saturday, thousands attended a protest in the state capital, Columbia, calling for the flag's removal. This is demonstrator Michaela Piller-Brown. We know what that flag symbolizes. We know the hate. We know the danger. It says stop. It says you are not welcome here. It says fear for your life. Take down the flag. Take it down. Meanwhile, Republican South Carolina State Representative Doug Brannon has announced his plans to sponsor legislation to take down the Confederate flag from the front of the state capitol. Brannon said he reached the decision after losing his friend, State Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, in the last week's massacre. Brannon told CNN's Poppy Harlow he regrets not taking action earlier. I apologize. To the people of South Carolina, I've been in the House for five years. I should have, I should have introduced this bill five years ago. Mm. I should not have let my friend. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be having this conversation. So let's talk about why you didn't. Do, why you didn't do it sooner? Um, I, I, I didn't do my job. The Confederate flag has flown near the state legislature in Columbia since the early 60s. Opponents of the flag say it's an offensive symbol and a reminder of the painful legacy of slavery. Meanwhile, some Southern whites defend the flag as a symbol of their regional heritage. Uh, the debate over the Confederate flag has found its way into presidential politics, with Republican presidential hopefuls being grilled on their positions. So far, the only high-profile Republican to unambiguously call for the flag's removal is not even in the 2016 
2016 presidential race. On Saturday, Mitt Romney tweeted, remove it now to honor Charleston victims. President Obama retweeted his former rival's message, saying, good point, Mitt. Well, for more, we go to Columbia, South Carolina, where we're joined by Kevin Alexander Gray, civil rights activist, community organizer who edited the book Killing Trayvons, an anthology of American violence. He is also the author of Waiting for Lightning to Strike the Fundamentals of Black Politics. Kevin Alexander Gray, welcome to Democracy Now! Talk about the significance of this flag and of a white Republican state senator, um, Brannon, now saying he is incredibly sorry that he didn't introduce this five years ago when he first became um, a state representative in Alabama. Kevin Gray. Well, in South Carolina. And, and actually, he's from my home county, Spartanburg County. So I'm really proud that he's sponsoring that bill. And, you know, listen, I heard the first interview, and we talk about white supremacy and, and um, Dylan Roof being an anomaly. Dylan Roof is not an anomaly. If you ride around South Carolina, in some places, Confederate flags on bumper stickers, on license tags, on car windows flying from people's homes are as common as stop signs. And when you talk about white supremacy as a structure, you have to talk about white supremacy as the structure that permeates America, that the foundation of our politics in this country is white supremacy. White supremacy is not merely the Ku Klux Klan and race hate groups. White supremacy is a structure which keeps a, uh, people down based on race, that keeps people in power. Racism is about power. You earlier had uh, FOP officer, uh, official on talking about race baiting, and which, which is just trying to flip the script, as we say it, on people that are, are challenging this idea of police power and the power, the, the white supremacy that's involved in the police beatings and the police killings that have gone on across this country. The, to, to say I'm surprised, I'm hurt, because Clemente Pinckney was a friend. I don't know the other martyrs like I knew him, but and, and people are hurt and stunned. But to say that, that Dylan Roof, who drives down streets in this state, named after Confederate war hero, heroes, who walks in buildings in this state, named after Confederate war heroes, a state in which the, the, the uh, heroes of the Confederacy— are honored on the statehouse grounds. The hero uh, of the of it, putting white supremacy in the Constitution in South Carolina, Pitchfork Ben Tillman, who drove black people out of the state at gunpoint, are heroes in the state. His statue st sits uh, across from that Confederate flag that flies on the statehouse grounds, right by the Confederate soldiers monument on the on the uh, uh, Robert E. Lee Highway. So that's the nature of our country. Everything that Dylan Roof said, they, they've been saying it about black people since black people were kidnapped and brought into this country. The idea of white supremacy is to, for, is to perpetuate the myth that this country is a land of immigrants when it's a land of immigrants and kidnappees. And to, for that young man to know about that church and to know the historical significance of that church— um, is it's it's not difficult to know in the history of the state because that's the church that Denmark Vesey uh, organized. It's down the street from the College of Charleston, where Glenn McConnell, who is the leader of the Senate, who is a Confederate reenactor, is now the president. So that's the nature of this state. Um, 
So we have to talk about white supremacy just more broadly than that flag. Now, if we want to talk specifically about that flag, the flag that flies on the statehouse ground, a bad compromise that the NAACP agreed to with the state legislature back in the 90s, that was a bad compromise. But the flag represents white supremacy. The original flag of the Confederacy, the stainless white banner, was a banner that was was designed to represent a white man's country. So, you know, for us who are opposed to the flag being on the statehouse grounds and all those monuments, people can fly the flag at their homes. They can wear it, put a, a flag bumper sticker on their car. They can wear it on their hats. They can wear it on their foreheads. But my tax dollar, people's tax dollars ought not go into supporting the idea of the Confederate States of America. Uh, the, when I was president of the ACLU back during the flag fight, we tried to make the legal argument, and we wanted to pursue it in court, that the flag flying on the Statehouse Dome was compelled speech, that you were compelling people to, to uh, support an ideology of white supremacy. Uh, the NAACP, as I said, stepped in and negotiated with the uh, state legislature. And and, um, and we got what we got. Uh, the bridge that thousands gathered on Sunday evening in solidarity with the victims is named after former Charleston Mayor Arthur Ravenel, who became a state senator. He supported flying the Confederate flag in the state capitol in a rally in 2000. In support of the flag, he referred to the NAACP as the National Association for Retarded People. Um, can you talk, speak to this issue, Kevin Gray? Well, look, uh, as I said, if the, look, this is South Carolina. They revere that history. They are in denial about what that history represents, the expansion of slavery. Um, and he's not the only one as a, uh, who's made statements like that. Uh, I mean, you know, there used to be—and uh, he's, he's passed away now— a fellow who owned a chain of barbecue restaurants here in Columbia— uh, um, Pat Buchanan actually set up his campaign headquarters at this gentleman's headquarters for his barbecue empire. His name was Maurice Bessinger. And uh, when the courts forced Maurice Bessinger to serve black patrons, he said, I might have to serve the niggas, but I'm giving my money to the Ku Klux Klan. So that is the nature of this state. South Carolina is proud that it was the first state to succeed from the Union, that it fired those shots at Fort Sumter. This is the home of the nullifiers, uh, John C. Calhoun. When you hear Dr. King's speeches and he talks about uh, Southern governors, their words dripping with interposition and nullification. That language came out of South Carolina. South Carolina refused to sign the Declaration of Independence on the 2nd. There had to be a compromise to take out the anti-slavery clause, and so uh, and they signed it on the 4th. Uh, that was South Carolina's influence in this history. So black people celebrate the 4th of July along with other Americans, but that was really the day that slavery was codified in this country. Country. So we want to have a conversation about race in this country and the foundations of white supremacy and racism. It starts in South Carolina and, and the, the ideology of white supremacy that permeates our nation today with the southernization of, 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 Amer of, of American politics. When we talk about Medicaid funding and, not, and Medicaid expansion and these southern governors like Nikki Haley, who fought against Medicaid expansion because they didn't want to give something to undeserved 
people, undeserving people who they see as black people. When you talk about voter ID laws, trying to keep a group of people from having power, almost like literacy tests and, and knowing how many bubbles are in a bar of soap. They talk that game now about reconciliation, but everybody uses this cold language here and across the country to deny black people and people of color uh, rights. Uh, this whole idea of so, go Interestingly, ahead. Governor Haley, uh, the South Carolina governor, said when asked about would she support taking down the um, the South the uh, Confederate flag, she said she want to introduce politics in this time. Um, you, uh, they continued with the conversation. Uh, they talked about terrorism. That was from today. That was from uh, this morning when uh, Democracy Now, uh, excellent information, uh, Pitchfork, Ben Tillman. Wowie, wowie. I was reminded because we spent so much time. I remember uh, this year where we had uh, the NAACP members from down in Charleston. Remember, we were talking about the Friendship Nine. We were talking about the Friendship Nine. Because it, uh, I don't remember who it was, but it was a black journalist. They were on television on Sunday, and they said the, uh, the Emmanuel Nine. That was the phrase they used, the Emmanuel Nine. I said, wow, we went from talking about the Friendship Nine in South Carolina, these black males that went <clears throat> to do a sit-in uh, and then being uh, arrested, charged. Uh, they had to, to do like chain gang time to go out and be slaves uh, for white people and work on some farm and doing nonsense. And they uh, they just had this big recognition and all that. And I don't, I think they did eventually clear their Record, I think. I think that was a part of the, the ceremony back the early part of this year. But just the the history uh, of white terrorism in South Carolina. Pitchfork, Ben Tillman. You heard that today. All of this whining and crying. And they, the the governor in South Carolina, uh, Nikki Haley, she came out today and said that uh, they were going to go ahead and she supported removing the flag. And they had some white state legislator. He said that they were going to remove the flag at some point uh, this summer. They'll probably have a big ceremony. Tim Wise will be invited. Punch, Kool-Aid. It's nonsense. Um, but next to the flag, they got the statue of Pitchfork Ben Tillman, former white supremacist, former governor of South Carolina, former United States senator. Uh, and that's why I said, I just... There is no way I could make any other selection for our new book. I felt just the timing period, uh, the fact that we ended Asada Shakur uh, right when all of this happened so that the opportunity was there to pick a book that is relevant to what's happening in South Carolina. Uh, and then I wanted to read this book anyway. <laughs> I had been uh, I have been trying to get this book, uh, the book I'm talking about, uh, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. Uh, I have been trying to get this book since the end of last year because they've been talking about Ben Tillman uh, for a long time. It's been lots of black people in South Carolina that had been protesting, uh, trying to get Ben Tillman's uh, different statues because he has all these monuments and statues and plaques and uh, major uh, buildings on uh, campuses, I think. Uh, Clemson and I think the University of South Carolina, I think there's several uh, campuses down there where he has something to uh, revere this about proud white supremacist who's probably responsible for scores, hundreds of black people dying and, and being harmed, probably higher than that. At any rate, 
Uh, and, and just you have heard all this running off at the mouth about take down the Confederate flag. How much have you heard about, well, let's take down everything with Ben Tillman's name on it. And maybe he contributed to why Dylan stormed Ralph, why he did this. How much? That's what I mean when I say the piece I'm working on writing now, <laughs> that this is all nonsense. They're just throwing the Confederate flag under the bus is the same. It's, 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 it's the same strategy that they typically do when they talk about racism. We just want you to think of racist white people as the Klan, not all the other white people that are over here chilling and think you're niggers too. Don't think about them as racist. Just think, you know, these five or six whites over here. These are the racists. The rest, these are these are all well-meaning, good white people over here. I mean, it's it's total nonsense. Uh, again. Ted Landsmark, um, that is the photo. I normally don't think of pictures to put with uh, my written material, but Ted Landsmark, a black male, Boston, Massachusetts. He was speared with the American flag. It was the time photo of the year. I think it was like 1972 uh, or so. Spike Lee uses that photograph in his uh, montage of images at the beginning of school days. Uh, but he was not speared with the Confederate flag. He was speared by a race soldier in Boston in the 1970s with the American flag. That is the system of white supremacy. Unless we're going to go around and take down everything, we're not going to show Superman anymore. I mean, everything. We're not going to show scandal anymore. No symbols of white supremacy. Scandal is off the air immediately. Empire is off the air immediately. No more Uncle Ben's rice ever. We're never going to see birth of a nation again ever. We're not calling the White House the White House. I mean, unless we're going down the list. Boom, 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 boom. Jacksonville is no longer going to be called Jacksonville in Florida. Mount Rushmore is being blown up because we cannot worship or revere enslavers and rapists. So Mount Rushmore is coming down like today. I mean, unless we're doing all that, I mean, come on. Come on. Come on. Anyway, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. That is our book for Friday. Uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific this Friday. Uh, if <clears throat> you are upset about that, you can voice your protest by not participating. I will get the message loud and clear if folks are like, you know, that is really whack, Gus. We did not want to read that. And uh, I don't care about Pitchfork, Ben Till. I don't live in South Carolina. I don't need to know the history of this state cooling the game. <laughs> you can, uh, that will, I will get the message if folks don't participate. But I think, I think this will allow us to be a lot more informed in how we process what's happening in South Carolina right now and how we articulate our thoughts on this situation. I think it will, it will just, Give us a, a, a great, I think it would be good information overall, but just with all of this happening, I think it would be good to know more of the history about this area of the world. And particularly, hey, this is a former governor, former U.S. senator. I mean, hey, I'm being a good citizen, learning more about uh, our forefathers who uh, set up the structure of this country, right? I'm doing a good thing. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. Uh, do not buy the book. And I think we might even be able to get the author on. I email, I had emailed him like eons ago. It might even have been last year, but I emailed him a long time ago about having him on the program. 
and uh, didn't hear back. I emailed him again and he contacted me. So we might even be able to get uh, the author to chime in and, and give some thoughts on uh, how this book relates to what's happening right now. Anywho, I will stop there. If folks would like to participate, if you have thoughts about uh, our guest or the clip or anything else, you know, it's been a lot of things happening. Feel free, 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, just a film. I'm tossing out some of the coverage that I was reading about uh, Dylan Storm Ralph. I've been saying Ralph because the people I saw on television were saying Ralph. But then I've noticed a lot of people have been saying Ruth, which is what, you know, that's what it looks like. That's what I thought at first. But the people were saying Ralph. So I will need to get that sorted out. <laughs> um, how, how people, how most people are pronouncing his last name. If everybody's going with Ruth, then I will, you know, I'll do what everybody else is doing. But um, they mentioned one of the films that I guess he was inspired or he, he watched or what have you. Uh, Romper Stomper. Romper Stomper. Uh, with Russell Crowe right, from uh, Beautiful Mind and uh, Gladiator Russell Crowe. Uh, so it's about this gang of racists. And uh, all they do is just go around and fight and beat up non-white people. Like, that's all they do. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. All day. Just go around and beat up. Now, it's it's bizarre. It's, I have seen much better. It's not on my top ten list at all. But it, it might be worth viewing uh, just, you know, to get some more insight about all this. Because uh, it has been attributed to one of the uh, cinematic interests of uh, the perpetrator in South Carolina. Anywho, uh, everyone who dialed in who has a hand up, uh, line should be open if you have comments. Uh, I guess I'm supposed to say I have, my article got published uh, today, Atlanta Black Star, uh, how racism impacts our interactions with white people and black people. I was a little nervous about the piece. It's uh, sometimes I write things that are not black and proud when I say that, like it's, it's not the thing that you're going to get a lot of right on brother. Amen. <laughs> like, uh, and I mean, everything, you know, is not supposed to be about, I'm not about that anyway. I've said that clearly, but, uh, just, I knew that going in. So I was a little nervous. I didn't know if I was going to get hate mail and that sort of thing. Uh, but it has been published. Uh, I have not had anything nasty thus far. I hope it is constructive. You can check it out though at, uh, Atlanta black star. Uh, did folks have comments they wanted to share? Yes, sir. You're a little low. You're a little low. Sorry about that. Can you hear me better there? That's a little better. Yeah, the guest is definitely, um, he's definitely back to racism. Yeah, everything went right back to a fit or a stick. And, um, you know, we want to get to any question that dealt directly with his own experience. So it had to go back to something sort of pop culture. And um, I didn't like that quick quick break. I didn't, I didn't, you know, yeah, that cool. And um, it was like we had that guest on earlier this year from South Carolina who said that 
wanted to get a big um, chain thing. It had to get it. It was looking like the Confederate thing or something like that. Um, that's just so crazy. Even though I don't think the flag would keep the face, I think that that might be a succession. You know, uh, if you have a racism, you might keep that flag or the state house. But it's not going to keep the practice of racism at all. Uh, I'm uh, the caller at nine two nine eight. You should be with us as well if you had uh, comments, observations. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Lady from New York. So um, I had a comment and a question. Actually, just hoping that. Um, some of the viewers are, 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 or some of the listeners are you, Gus, could give me some insight. Um, the myth is just so strong about the old races dying out that it's it's almost saddening. Um, so the comment is, is I was watching on the news with some family members, and we're looking at the, the gentleman, and um, I, I stated that, you know, this isn't the first time that, Black people have been murdered in churches. This is just a continuation of, of the the terrorism. Um, and the comment went, well, he's very rare. He's, you know, he's just something that doesn't happen all the time. And, you know, and it's just like, well, we're looking at him, we're seeing him right now, we see that he's in his 20s, and he committed these murders. I don't understand why people want to hold on to the... And then, of course, it goes to... It's it's almost like this cycle. Well, see, white people voted for Obama, too, and that's why Obama is here. And it's just not the critical analysis of what is going on. So um, that was the comment. My question is, how do you talk to other black people, particularly family, about racism when the emotion and the, at least not on my part, but the emotion and the, I think almost like um, the repetition of what others have stated is usually the focus of the conversation instead of really analyzing and saying, you know, hey, let's, let's all speak, not with one yelling or one being over the other. And let's really, you know, have a discussion. How can someone have a discussion um, when, when that situation occurs? Does, does anyone have any, you know, advice? Uh, one thing I would share, or I guess first before I even get to that, uh, Janae Desmond Harris, uh, she writes for Vox.com. Uh, she wrote an article, uh, Stop Waiting for Racism to Die Out with Old People. The Charleston shooting suspect is 21. Uh, I had just mentioned this theme uh, as you know a possibility for something I wanted to write about for this week, and she uh, published it today. Uh, but that's one. Two, um, when any black people, whether it's family or whatever, just any victims of racism, if you see that they are being emotional about things and they're not being critical, being logical in evaluating if the things that they are saying or things that they believe 
are true, if they're valid? Is there evidence that contradicts whether or not these things are true? Uh, if you see that there's just a lot of emotions and feelings and they're, you know, kind of getting riled up about things, maybe getting loud, not listening. Um, that to me is a person that's not receptive. They're not, you know, ready to have a calm, productive conversation on this topic. So I wouldn't force it on them. Um, I wouldn't, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't matter what they were saying, you know, if they were uh, in support of having sex with a white person, if they were saying that, you know, I think Dylan Ralph is great. I'm going to, you know, buy, I'm going to make him some cookies right now. I think he's great. You know, he just needs to just needs second chance, whatever. Um, it, it really would, that conversation in my view cannot begin until that person says, you know, Hey, I'm still learning. Uh, I want to hear your perspective or other people's perspective on racism, even if it's a perspective that is new to me, even if it's a perspective that sounds a little strange, I'm going to listen and I'm going to think about it. I might not agree, but I'm going to listen and I'm going to think about it and I'm going to see if it's true. I'm going to see if I can process it, if I need to do some research, study, talk it out some more, ask questions. And see if this is true. That's when, hey, we can have a great conversation. But if they're not there, you don't force them. Uh, I would just, you know, maybe ask a question or two. And one, one other uh, suggestion, I would try to do it more in a one-on-one -on -one situation. If I noted that it was a lot of black people or, you know, even three or four black people and they weren't very receptive uh, when trying to talk about racism, they would get loud, emotional arguments, cursing, kind of discourteous. I would try to make sure that it's one-on-one because -on -one, it's been my experience when it's no audience, right, to, to instigate things or to perform or to look stupid in front of and be self-conscious about. When it's no audience, I've found that people tend to be a bit more courteous. They'll be a bit more patient uh, about things that that can help kind of make things a bit more constructive to try to not do it where it's you against, you know, like three, four, five other <coughs> victims, um, if that makes sense. But those would be some of my recommendations. And again, just the importance, recognize, is this person receptive? If they're not, if they can't, you know, have that honest, open conversation and, and kind of re-examine some of their views, it's, it's no problem. Well, it's unfortunate, but that's that's not something I'm going to try to force on them. I am content. I will be quiet. Make your cookies for Dylan Ralph and I will sit quietly with my thoughts. <laughs> that would be my recommendation. Uh, if other folks want to chime in, feel free. Or if I, what I said didn't make sense, uh, you can let me know. No, it actually made uh, perfect sense. I did have actually one more comment about the um, the Confederate flag. Um, I, I am in agreement of the flag being taken down. Although I don't think that that is hmm, how you say. Um, I don't think that's like the best stance to make or the best thing to ask for. I, for I don't think that the nine people dying and being murdered is the equivalent of okay. Now we should take down a flag if that makes any sense. I think their lives are worth more than just taking down a flag. Although I do understand what it represents. And I do, you know, believe it should be taken down. These people are still going to have them on their bumper stickers. They'll probably start getting tattoos and wearing T-shirts of it, you know. They, they'll probably still have it outside of their homes. I don't think that that 
is I don't, I just don't think that that honors the victims. And I'm wondering how um, when these incidents occur, because they will occur more often and more frequently, how black people can come together and say, this is racism, white supremacy, and this is what needs to happen, and this is what we want to happen, versus something so, to me, almost small as saying, okay, we should take down the flag now because nine people got killed, or we should consider taking down the flag now because nine people died. just don't think it adds up. So um, I'll meet my, my line and, and listen. If other folks have suggestions uh, to her queries, uh, you can pitch in, or if you just have your own comments about what, the, what you heard from the guest or anything else that we've been talking about, um, I would only uh, add on, on the latter portion that that's I'm pointing out that's my goal uh, in the piece that I am writing, how white people, in my opinion, have steered this narrative towards the flag. And I start, I saw it seeing that happen early on. I think Dr. Rasayan, he was saying that that is a distraction to keep you focused on something that's totally, total nonsense. It's not going to solve uh, any problems. It'll just be a, a talking point that they can go on and, and get all these quotes and sound bites and all that silliness. White people are very good at uh, how they control the way people talk and think about these uh, type of narratives. And I think they've just done a great job in, in getting people to focus on the flag as though that's solving a problem, which it clearly is not. Other folks have comments? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Good evening, guys. So, video for the callers. Um, I was going to say I agree with you in reference to uh, the previous caller uh, speaking to people one on one. I think there's just too much room for ambush when you're having a discussion that could become heated in a group setting. So, I think that's the, the, the best advice uh, you could have given her uh, was to actually wait until it's a one on one setting. If it's a group setting, I would say don't even get involved. Just stay out of it if it's if it's a group setting. But if it's a one-on-one thing, definitely take you know you can take those steps, but start with baby steps, um, with just simple discussions or just bringing them to um, little bits of information until they're ready for more or unless they ask for more. Um, I would say that's my suggestion. But I agree with Gus on that. Um, as far as Mr. Orstendorf, um, I think he was very informative, but I also think he was very very refined, especially when it came to his own personal experiences. He was willing to, to be um, pretty straightforward with a lot of the questions that he could answer in a more general sense about white people collectively. But when it came time to really discuss his own personal experience, he was extremely refined. And I think at 25, when these people learn this kind of behavior, you know, from out the womb, <laughs> seriously, um, there's no way that he didn't have any personal experiences or maybe and I can't say that he actually has done so, or possibly himself has practiced with some form of overt uh, white supremacy, in my opinion. Um, in reference to the, your opinion on the flag, I agree with you. If they're going to take the flag down, they should take them all down. I really don't think it should be taken down because it should be it should be a reminder. I think the American flag is a reminder <laughs> of what white supremacy is. The British flag is a reminder. The Australian flag is a reminder. So if they're going to take down one, they should take down all. Um, and that scenario, the only way I think that scenario will come to fruition is when white supremacy is replaced with justice. So I don't think that it should be taken down because I think we'll forget. I mean, you can look at all the people who've gotten some form of reparations for the damage that has been done to them historically, and um, especially uh, the Jews. And, you know, essentially, they went from being uh, so-called oppressed to 
actually uh, becoming white. So they cross the line themselves. So they benefit even more, and they've always benefited from the fact that they look European. So, um, you know, in my opinion, black people, will, even if they were to give black people reparations, we would still be under the duress of white supremacy. <laughs> so I, I think that, you know, until actually white supremacy is a place for justice, the flag should stay up. And every other reminder should stay up. <laughs> and, and to let us know every day that black people need to understand that we have to change our behavior to reflect the fact that we're intergenerational prisoners of war. That's what Kevin Gray said, and I agree with that emphatically. Until we, are, we understand that as an entire group, no matter where, where we are, that we are intergenerational prisoners of war, and we start acting as such, we're going to have all the incidences that we've seen, and they're going to manifest a hundred folks. And that's my opinion. I'll uh, leave my line there. Thank you. Hello, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, I, 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 I feel that, um, that everyone um, are making the correct um, analysis that is not substance. I don't know how to say the word substance. It's not, you know, it's just not enough for them to just um, take down a flag. What we have to do is we really have to take racism, white supremacy, uh, the, the issues that we have, and we have to make substance changes in um, South Carolina in the schooling of black children, in the incarceration of black people, in the health care. And these are the things that, um, but we need to get, and we need to get to the, um, even if we can't get white, because we cannot make anybody do anything, if we cannot get them to get to the root of it, we have to get to the root of making, as Neely Fuller says, um, we have to get to the root of making uh, changes that are going to, like, be a patchwork. Okay, they're not going to do what, exactly what we want them to do, but we're going to get exactly what we want to get. We're going to get better health care. We're going to get jobs, and we have to do it for ourselves. Um, but we do have to, and we have to um, make sure that we have education for our children on racism and white supremacy, how it works, really, education. And we should not allow anybody to tell us to throw away our churches. Our churches, no matter how it happened, God has taken, and he, is, and he can make us strong within these churches as institutions. And they could be institutions not only just for Christians to come, but other black people to come into these institutions for learning. We need to utilize these institutions. I think if we throw them away, it's a tactical error, or if we um, uh, don't take full advantage of them. I think that's a tactical error on our part. Thank you. Any of the other folks that are with us, all the folks who got a, a hand up, uh, you should, uh, your line should be open if you had a comment you wanted to get in. If you are listening and you think you might want to share, press star six, we'll get your hand. Uh, we have, I don't know, about 12 minutes before uh, the end of the program. Any other comments? We'll assume folks uh, are satisfied. Um, I emailed Pam, uh, Trojan Horse Publications, uh, 
Trojan horse, death of a dark nation, racial interracial con game. I emailed Pam to see if she'd been uh, paying attention to uh, everything in South Carolina to see if she wanted to come and share her views. She said she was trying to listen to the compensatory call in this past Saturday, and uh, she got sidetracked. She uh, was actually trying to uh, tune in, not just participate, but she wanted to talk about that as well. But I want to see if we can get her uh, sometime this week. Uh, and Dr. Rossayan had said he wanted to come in as well uh, to talk about this situation. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to get uh, quite a few folks uh, over the next few weeks or so to process uh, all of this and uh, just do a better job in a sense that we can make sure we have more and more black people uh, who can ask great questions about this incident, are very informed uh, about the historical context uh, that produced this incident. Uh, and just are using the most accurate terms possible when discussing uh, what took place. But uh, I'll post uh, if we're able to get like a Wednesday, Thursday date for the program uh, for Pam. I know a lot of folks uh, really appreciate when she is able to come on and share her views. So uh, I'll let folks know if she's she's able to come visit with us to discuss uh, if you have any questions, problems, can't find something in the archives, feel free, drop an email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com Right on. Uh, we're on Twitter at untiljustice on Twitter at untiljustice uh, you can message me there as well if you have any Difficulties, problems, uh, problems accessing the live program. I know some folks have had uh, some minor issues with that also, but let me know. We will uh, try to get things taken care of. And again, uh, the book, the new book for the Friday book study session, uh, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy. We will be doing session number one on Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We are fundraising summer of 2015. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener-supported counter-racist radio. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, if you're not into PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, big thanks to all the people who have invested down through the years and allowed us to continue broadcasting. I uh, hope the program has been constructive, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, just for the record, uh, I had not, I wasn't keeping track or anything, but I noticed today, like we have been on every day uh, since the uh, tragedy uh, was this past Wednesday down in South Carolina. Uh, we've been on every day uh, since then, uh, just trying to be active. Uh, I know this is a lot of people. I can just tell from the, the traffic on uh, the Facebook pages and everything. And uh, it's reminiscent, I can only say Trayvon Martin, uh, when that was getting a lot of attention, just uh, lots and lots of people uh, are talking about this situation, talking about racism, 
the job situation. I will be looking forward to uh, this coming Saturday for the compensatory call-in uh, with how this plays out on the job for a week. Uh, if white people are saying things and that's what it's, it's been more of those incidents. Same thing happened with Michael Brown, where uh, some white people I saw today were fired because they posted uh, tweets or Facebook commentary in support of the shooting saying, yeah, that Dylan's my man right on. I like what he did. We need some more. That's sort of the, having more of that happen. So be interesting to pay attention. But I'm, I'm glad we've been able to be uh, active and uh, hopefully helpful uh, in folks processing all this and not being traumatized because I think that's important too. Uh, I've written about that. I think we had a female caller. Uh, she mentioned it a couple weeks back uh, and just saying the, the traumatic impact that this has uh, as a black person, you, you just, you continue to see these images of just black people being slaughtered and with impunity where nothing is done about it. Uh, well, white people just keep doing this and getting away with it and, uh, and then bankrolling white people for doing this, that it can, it can really be demoralizing <clears throat> and just have you where you are feeling helpless, hopeless, and just totally discouraged. And I think that is, I think that is deliberate. I think that's a part of it. I think the term that, uh, Pam uses, uh, in the, in the books is psychological terrorism. Uh, it just, it, it reminds me of, uh, quest love with the roots. Uh, the summer 2013, after the Trayvon Martin murder trial, after the lack of a conviction, Questlove said it was it was like a reminder that his black life meant nothing. And he said that, you know, he knew that before. But I mean, who wants to be painfully reminded that you're nothing, your life doesn't matter. Uh, he said that's what it was like. And I think we just get a barrage of that sort of, of conditioning and trauma on a regular basis. And it, it just seems like it's been really intensified uh, over the last, you know, year or two. Anywho, um, it, again, if you have, you know, problems, feedback, drop an email and uh, I will post as soon as I get things uh, confirmed. Uh, if Pam, if she's going to be able to come and hang out with us uh, this week to kind of give her views, I'll post it. It'll be at Black Talk Radio Network, Facebook, uh, all the other spots so that people will be in the know. Uh, and then uh, at minimum Friday, book study session, super excited, ready to roll. Uh, we should have Dr. Uh, Marva Robinson back with us as well. Uh, she was with us the end of 2014. Uh, she is with the Association of Black Psychologists in St. Louis. They were doing all that great work uh, addressing the mental health issues of black citizens in uh, Ferguson and the greater St. Louis area. She'll be back with us before the end of the month uh, to give us an update on how that's going. And then, you know, a whole new round of trauma now with the uh, South Carolina situation. But I'm excited about that, too. Anywho, uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope the program was constructive and we will be back uh, shortly. Uh, remain codified. I know it's warm weather and folks are getting out and having a good time. Just be codified. <laughs> you do not want to do anything to cause any unnecessary problems. Uh, I would encourage sobriety. If you can't do sobriety at minimum, be codified. Stay at one spot if you're going to consume any alcohol or other intoxicants. 
not around any whites and even be mindful about the non-white people that you're going to be in contact with because we just have way too many incidents of easily avoidable conflict with alcohol and intoxicants at the center. Uh, I would encourage sobriety. Definitely no consuming uh, of any intoxicants if you're going to get behind the wheel. Even be cautious if you're going to be a passenger or a pedestrian because race soldiers look for any reason and will even fabricate a few to mess you over and cause you difficulties if you are a black person. That is the world we live in. That's why we got to be codified. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context of white supremacy, signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.